What's up? Hello, Joe. Groundhog Day. As you can see, it's still freezing in these parts by my attire. It's actually pretty warm where you are, obviously. <laughs> it's warmer where you are. It's warmer. I'm not I should so be on that side of the table. <clears throat> yeah. It's obviously warm over there. Six more weeks of winter. Yeah. According to Groundhog Phil. Groundhog Phil? Yeah. It's Groundhog Day. Uh, it was last week. Yeah. February 2nd. And? He sees his, he comes out, he sees his shadow. It's six more weeks of winter. If he yeah. doesn't see his shadow, yeah, spring is around the corner. Yeah. Uh, this was on my mind. I was watching the the reporting around this incident in Syria. Um, uh-huh. What was it? Wednesday, Thursday. It was a weird week, you know. It had a lot of like news items that no one thing dominated. One thing was pushed off the page the next day, and for one whole day, there was this incident in Syria, um, where the U.S. Con- conducted a military operation right up there in Idlib on Turkey's border. Do you think that was the first kind of U.S. operation? I mean, other than the fact that they're practically occupying the other corner of Syria since two or three years, mm-hmm. that's the first we've heard of any U.S. operations. Well, that they tell you about, right? Right, that you hear about. Um, that's not the only thing we want to talk about. We want to talk about, of course, the the situation in Ukraine, of course. And that's why it's kind of like Groundhog Day because it's the same old, same old, right? And the week kind of encapsulated. Every day in the week, had the big story was either Syria, mm-hmm. Ukraine, both of which, of course, concern major geopolitical standoff between the US and Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's mass protests. They keep going on. Um you know, the protest movement in Canada is still new, but it's going into its what, third week at this point. But it's kind of like Groundhog Day as where there's still mass protests uh, all across Europe. The French just had the 30th weekend in a row of major protests. The media here, you know, covers mm-hmm. it a little, but mm-hmm. it doesn't really get out into the English-speaking world. Mm-hmm. Um, major protests in Australia, of course, after probably inspired a large part by what happened in Canada. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, that's kind of like Groundhog Day is what it occurs to me. It's like we're going round and round, you know. It's the same things. Yeah. And uh, nothing changes, so to speak. But it, 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 we, want to, we would say that it does all speak to big change, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not going to happen overnight, but this is a, as much as it's um, a drag on people to hear nonstop pandemic news, nonstop, you can't do this, you can't do that, you must do that, nonstop uh, wars and rumors of wars, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's an incredible time of change at the same time. Right. Uh, of course, we also want to talk about that. But one day it was headline news in the U.S. after this crazy statement from the Pentagon um, about their their bombshell revelation that uh, Russia is planning false flag attack in Ukraine. Yeah. Um, what do you want to start with? Uh, we'll throw up that, uh, since you started with it, throw up that um, picture I just sent you, Scotty, yeah, that uh, link I just sent you. Um, it's just around the... Uh, This is the scene of the 
supposed attack or attack, alleged attack, whatever, uh, by U.S. forces in Syria in Idlib province. Um, this is in theory, supposedly people, the description on the video there is people inspect a destroyed house following an operation by U.S. military in the Syrian village of Atme. In Idlib province, uh, U.S. Special Forces conducted a large-scale counter-terrorism raid in northwestern Syria overnight, a bit far from home, but whatever. That's the global war on terror for you. And what the Pentagon said was a successful mission. Uh, reporters, residents and act activists reported multiple deaths, including civilians, i.e. civilians being uh, women and children, mostly. Uh, the first story was that it was an ISIS leader. Um, um, who blew himself up. Wait. Now, that video um, would suggest the guy's name is Al-Qarashi. Al-Qarashi. Um, that video would suggest, of course, the questions that were raised. Do, we, do you have the video of um, of Matt Lee or, or uh, the State Department stuff you were talking about? Uh-huh. Yes. Um Well, actually, that's a, that's a, separate, that's a separate topic. It's, yeah, it's a separate they're topic. linked, anyway. but it's separate. The, yeah, so anyway, this this was, um, this is the scene and the, you know, obviously, so just like I just said, uh, it was uh, the, the leader, the effective, the successor to al-Baghdadi, if you remember al-Baghdadi, uh, the mysterious, elusive al-Baghdadi was killed a few years ago, supposedly, again, by uh, US forces, and uh, now this is his, his successor who has been killed. Uh, of course, ISIS has been doing pretty much nothing uh, really since the Russian military took care of ISIS, the problem of ISIS in Syria and to a certain extent Iraq, but primarily Syria, uh, really, what, about three years ago now? It was kind of like more or less done and dusted, 2018. Um, and that was after years of, uh, there's a beep, beep, beep going on. There, uh, that was after years of... Um, the U.S. apparently doing nothing. If people want a little quick uh, recap, if you remember from history, uh, recent history that you may have forgotten, um, ISIS spread across uh, out of Iraq and into Syria. Um, about starting about 2014, um, and was made m massive gains across. Took over more or less Iraq, most of Iraq, or major parts of Iraq, apart from the north and the Kurds and stuff. But then swept into Syria. Coincidentally, at a time, uh, a few years into the supposed uh, Syrian civil war, when there was a popular uprising in 2011, starting in 2011, to overthrow uh, Assad. But anybody who's familiar with the topic knows that this was basically a Western, more or less, inspired uh, uh, proxy war uh, against the Syrian government to try and overthrow Assad, because Assad wasn't uh, the kind of leader that um, the Americans wanted or the Saudis wanted. Uh, because he was, you know, aligned with Iran and, you know, to do with basically the geopolitics of that region, it's too much to go into right now, but suffice to say that uh, Syria in 2011 began to be flooded with jihadi proxy forces in the pay of America and its allies and Saudi Arabia primarily uh, to overthrow, uh, to attempt to, you know, destroy the country, destroy the Syrian Arab army under Assad and get rid of Assad. It didn't work out. That was It was getting close to that point in about 2016, 17. Was it 17 that Russia went in? It went in yeah. 15. Oh, sorry, 2015. So 2015, yeah, it was, a, okay, a year. They were getting to the point where ISIS were, you know, pretty much had almost taken over the country. And Russia went in, yeah, it was September, the first um the first attack by Russia on ISIS, and they pretty much cleaned it up within about a year, 
you could say six months maybe, but let's say a year, 18 months, it was pretty much done. And this was after about 18 months or almost two years of the U.S. having apparently having no effect whatsoever on ISIS and, and the associated jihadi forces that were meant to uh, destroy, were meant to overthrow and destroy Syria and overthrow Assad. U.S. couldn't do anything with it despite its massive military might. Russia comes in. And like I said, within six months, they'd put a serious dent in ISIS and pushed them back and they were gone within about a year, year and a half. Um, so, yes, yeah, since then, so that, that would take us to from, say, 2000, end 2015. By 2000, end 2017, for sure, uh, ISIS was done um, in Syria. America's imperial agenda in the country had been pretty much over, pretty much, you know, cancelled by the Russian uh, military. And you heard nothing from ISIS since then, really, uh, until supposedly now just pops up out of nowhere after two years of COVID and pandemic and mm. um, ISIS, the ISIS leader who apparently has been doing nothing. I love how the first it. thing you hear about there being a new ISIS leader is that we got him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, it wasn't, I mean, if, you, if you're interested, he has a page on Wikipedia and that kind of stuff. Maybe. History, maybe uh, he was. But not in the legit. media. But um, yeah. Uh, so he, he warranted you know, being killed. And I suppose the point of that picture I just put up there is that, just getting to the point here, uh, he was, if you put the picture back up there, Scotty, um, the point, uh, the, the the question was whether or not the US had actually, well, whether or not he had, if the official story was true, which was that according to the official story, they decided the US was trying to be very careful and not cause any civilian casualties. And they, uh, so they went in on foot, basically, they didn't use any uh, uh, missile strikes. Uh, but unfortunately, this ISIS al-Karashi guy uh, leader uh, blew himself up. Um, there was a question over whether or not that was the case. Because, if people remember, again, it's not too long ago, back in last summer, uh, when the US was uh, affecting its disastrous route pull out from Afghanistan, uh, the US fired a missile at a at a house basically in in uh, Kabul in Kabul in Afghanistan, uh, saying that there was an imminent uh, car bomb attack coming from that location. Uh, but apparently there wasn't. It was just somebody's house and they killed an entire family. I think it was seven people in total killed. So initially they said it was a car bomb, then they had to admit that actually there was no car bomb there, but they just killed a family um, in Afghanistan. So given that, when they come out with now with this statement that they had killed the ISIS leader and unfortunately had killed three or four children and three or four women as well, um, the media was, you know, was a warranted question about whether or not that was actually true. Or in a few days or a week or something or two weeks, we're going to find out that, oh, you know... Uh, you know, uh, this wasn't actually the ISIS leader. It wasn't any any real target, um, and we just killed another family. Yeah. But in response to that, Jen Psaki, uh, in response to those questions from the from some journalists, uh, Jen Psaki said, "Well, do you do you believe us? Or do you believe the do you believe ISIS?" So it's either like you're with you're either with us or against us. You're not allowed to question these things. What we say is is sacrosanct. It's the absolute truth. You're not allowed to question it, even though we've. we've we're on record of having lied before and or at least got things wrong before. But anyway, the official story was that he, he blew himself up. Uh, he, was, he went suicide bomby. And the reason I put, I put up that picture is because 
the evidence in that picture suggests to me that that part of the story is probably true because if it was actually a missile strike uh, on that building, you would probably have a lot more damage. It looks like, I don't know, it looks kind of to me like it's a, a veranda that has collapsed. You know, a few pillars maybe came down or something like that, but you would expect that if it was a, you know, powerful enough or fairly powerful a missile strike from a plane on that building, most of the building will be gone or there will be a big hole in it, a bigger hole in it than there is there, you know. The very fact that those people in the picture can stand on the roof suggests to me that there was some kind of smaller uh, explosion, although I can't be sure about that. Um, yeah. There are, there, are, <clears throat> there, are, there are pictures as well that show a big scorch mark in a field next to the house, though. Right. And some of the descriptions have, like, the gunfire took place over three hours. Surely if you're approaching the building and then, boom, um, your target goes suicidal. That's the end of the story. Mm. What's with the three-hour gunfight? Mm. I mean, this is mainstream descriptions. Um, damage to neighboring buildings. Well, it wasn't exactly a tenement slum. You can see that they're basically half-built villas in the area, you know, right. each one on a one-acre plot or something. Yep. So, a three-hour change of gunfight? Anyway, yeah. it, it, it was so strange. Like, the, the description of it, you know, breaking news. We went in, he blew himself up, that was the end of it. Mm -hmm. It actually got American reporters asking questions, which they rarely do. Mm -hmm. um, and it got some people, uh, well, it got some rare pushback from uh, CNN, of all places, uh, Jake Tapper, I think, was quite annoyed and uh, disgusted at the at the at that response from Jen Psaki. You either you either believe us or you believe ISIS, you know. Um, and and he he himself cited the or one of his guests, whoever cited the fact that they had lied before, so they have every right to question and stuff like that. So it's a strange, uh, it's strange, let's say to me anyway, to hear that kind of a a pushback from yeah. from from the very you know very pro. Uh, government, let's say, or uh, media, or pro pro Biden government, anyway, um, who traditionally don't question those kind of things and just uh, they hold the intelligence, U.S. intelligence community and services and their intelligence in, in high regard and generally don't question it, you know, uh, except for maybe long after the fact when they can't deny the fact that it was bogus, like for example, Iraq's weapons of mass destruction or or several other bogus statements by. Um, by the U.S. intelligence community. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and then, maybe as a result of that, it got pushed off the front pages. Mm -hmm. It lasted 24 hours. I mean, can you see any genuine strategic value for why the U.S. did this from the point of view of what's going on in Syria? Um, well, that, that, region, that Idlib region is a kind of protectorate for uh, and has been for most of the whole so-called supposed well, they call it civil war, it's not a civil war. Uh, the war against Syria over the past, really, it's almost like 10 years now, really, for, since it began. Um, that area of Idlib has been a kind of, has held out, you know, the, as, the, um, as the jihadi forces sponsored by the US and by Saudi were pushed westwards, you know, uh, out of, because they couldn't go back to Iraq, so they had to go, basically were pushed westwards. Uh, and they hold up basically in Idlib, uh, which is in, in this area, which is close to, it's just north of um, Latakia, where there's a Russian uh, uh, base, and it's quite close to 
Well, maybe we'll throw up a... Can we, do we have a map here? Um, uh, yeah. Throw up this map just to, just so you can see, give you an idea um, of what we're talking about. Um, it's, it's only a little... It's only a small map, but it just gives you an idea there at the top. So that's... That Hatay province is a, and if you see it in the smaller key there down at the bottom, that's a little, a little wiener of uh, Turkey that comes down into uh, into Syria, and it's been uh, has for a long time been contested for really since 1922, since the French mandate in Syria went basically, in, or a French mandate in the Middle East, where the French basically ceded that part of which was Syria to. Um, Turkey, and it's been a contested region. Syria still claims it as their own, uh, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of Turkmen, um, Turkmen's in there. Basically, it's, it's a whole, you know, it's a long running kind of conflict. It's been fairly pe peaceful for most of that time, but it's a it's a bone of contention between Syria and Turkey. And Turkey has been along its border there. If you just to, to the right of an, an image of to right to the right of. Uh, of, of Hatay pro province, you have a border with the border with Turkey, and Turkey. If you remember again over the over the Syrian conflict, Turkey was very concerned about um, any incursions or maintaining its control over. It actually took quite a, a chunk of, of land uh, south of the Turkish border into Syria there throughout the whole uh, war or attack on Syria. So Turkey's been very concerned about um, and has concerned about ceding any territory, let's say, to in that whole conflict when there's all sorts of different groups fighting against each other, supported by the US, supported by Turkey, supported by Syria, supported by the Saudis, different factions. Uh, Turkey was front and centre in, in all of that in terms of protecting its own kind of territorial integrity and, and obviously this little province which it saw as potentially, uh, it, it potentially losing uh, in that whole fog of war situation, you know. So Turkey has definitely... Turk, the Turks under Erdogan are, you know, they're fairly strict Muslim type, at least Erdogan is, and he sees Islam uh, as a kind of state religion and as uh, and ideologically. He has, his, lots of people claim... His problem is, is Kurds. Right, exactly. He, he has this 20-kilometer band right. uh, incursion into northern Syria all right. the way across. Yeah. That's occupied by the Turkish army for yeah. al almost three years at this point. Yeah. And it's because he's... Uh, between the lines, what it is, is he's afraid that the US and London and Paris, etc., and Israel are going to go plan B. The Russians having basically cleansed Syria of ISIS, mm -hmm. plan B was create some kind of Kurdish autonomous region yeah. in the northeast or, or use certain Or use certain jihadis to, to infiltrate into Infil Turkey. Right. And you know what I mean? There was lots of potential uh, threats yeah. to Turkey in, in that respect, you know. And of course, Turkey then was part of the whole conflict. It had its own kind of uh, mercenary types that were involved in, in in the conflict as well. So it's pretty it's a pretty complicated situation. <coughs> but if you just, I mean, it's a it's a it's a like I said, it's a complicated uh, situation. It's it's kind of in the past now to a large extent, except for this odd kind of like killing of an ISIS uh, commander or something like that by the US to keep their hand in and to I suppose focus the public's attention on the idea of geopolitics and fighting the war on terror and America still relevant overseas and all that kind of stuff plays into it but there's um, th there's a good uh, if you want to sum it up if you just throw up the Los Angeles Time, Times article this is from 2016 so right kind of in the middle of it um, 
the title really is of the of the article is enough to explain to you, although it it obviously opens a whole can of worms, but you can get the general idea from this title. Um it's from the Los Angeles Times. Like I said, in Syria, militias armed by the Pentagon fight those armed by the CIA. <laughs> When's that from? 2016. 16. Nuts. Oh, that's true. March 2016. And of course, you've got that area basically pretty much where that, uh, where that recent, uh, where the ISIS commander, supposed leader of ISIS, although he wasn't really, ISIS doesn't exist to any extent, to any great extent. It never really existed except when it was supported by the US and in Syria, and it was made up of all sorts of different factions of different people, all doing it for, for different reasons, but the common denominator among them all was money. They're all being paid. Um, Timber Sycamore, Operation Timber Sycamore, look up Operation Timber Sycamore on, um, that was the CIA under Obama financing jihadi moderate extremists. Quote. No, moderates, whatever. Anyway, that area, those those three little bombier Azaz, that's the general area. It lives just slightly to the left there where this guy was killed. So that's been a a kind of a in the latter years of this conflict has been the the the, the, the last holdout or the remaining hotspot, if you know what I mean, of um, of activity, such as such as to what to whatever extent there is any activity, which there isn't really a lot. Um, yeah. But it's been pretty bad. I mean, let's just go to the on that topic. Let's just go to the to the YouTube video, Scotty, and give you another. I'm giving broad overviews here because it's way too complicated to get into in any specific detail, and all that information is available. But let's just play a few minutes of this, or not even a few minutes, but a minute. In the past decade, three countries in the Middle East have undergone devastating civil wars that have claimed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. Yemen, Iraq, and Syria. And in the time between 2012 and 2016, when the two black marble photos were compiled, much has changed. In Yemen, the lights have gone out across conflict zones since the civil war began in 2014 and after nearly 400,000 deaths. In Iraq, ISIS has been long since defeated, but from 2012 to 2016, you can clearly see the lights fading to darkness in all of the areas that they captured and occupied. And then, worst of all, there are the effects of war that can be clearly seen from space above Syria. As the civil war in the country intensified and the catastrophic destruction began growing greater, as much as 80% of the lights in the country went out in just the four years between 2012 and 2016. The most significant changes of all came around the city of Aleppo, the largest city inside of Syria and one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world. As the four years between 2012 and 2016 went by, the lights across the city went out. And that tells us a very, very grim story for in those four years one of the Uh, most that's um thanks america you can thank america for that because all of that was instigated and facilitated and happened because of america Uh, because the cia and the pentagon had a a little war amongst themselves apparently well functionally effectively that's what it was they in the same way they 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 teamed up with the Saudis in the late 70s and 80s in Afghanistan and, and flooded the country with jihadis, whipped up a bunch of jihadis and armed them and trained them and funded them. They did exactly the same thing in Syria uh, starting in 2011, but really got going in 2000, a couple of years later. Uh, and that was the result up to 2016. You had, when you see the lights going out across a, a country like that, well, you can imagine the devastation that was, that was caused, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it was all to get rid of... It was all for geopolitics, basically, for control of the region. The Saudis were very, very happy to be part of it because Syria was, more, was, you know, Assad, 
was was uh, Alawite, which is you know Shiite, Shiite aligned aligned with uh, with uh, Iran, and the conflict in Yemen is the same. The Houthis are Shiites are aligned with Iran, so it's all to protect America's uh, petro state, Saudi Arabia, and the petrodollar and America, Germany, and all that kind of stuff. It's again, it's a complicated topic. We've written about it, talked about it before. Other people have talked about it and written about it a lot. It's very clear. It's very obvious when you furnish yourself with the with the facts of this of the case. And the only thing that would stop you accepting it for what it actually is is some kind of ideology that America goes around the world spreading freedom and democracy rather than turning out lights. That's what it does. Um, yeah. So, um, uh, for what it's worth, the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights reports there were Russian airstrikes in Idlib. Um, Later that day, mm -hmm. connected. Don't know. Well, again, it's like what was the official well, the, U.S. reason for it? It was just to take. Yeah, yeah. Biden could just say the war against we killed ISIS. the leader of ISIS. Yeah, Biden could get on there and look presidential and look like he's actually worth anything and can do anything and has any oversight over anything. It's a bit of a big up to Biden. He's had a pretty bad year, you know. Um, and he gets his photo up in the Situation Room. Right, but it's also like I said, just uh, you know, not, not far, just not relatively close to that area of Idlib, you have the Russian, uh, two Russian military bases, basically a naval base and a military base. And um, the Russians obviously are concerned about the US attempting to, in the broader geopolitical war, that's been going on for, what, 80 years now maybe, um, against Russia. Uh, they're concerned about, you know, American deviousness, using proxy forces and starting wars and, and you know, uh, with an attempt to push push Russia out of wherever they can push Russia out of, basically, so um, Russia's yeah still active, still keeping an eye on the, on the, on the situation because it can flare up at any time. You know, if they if they were able to flood the country with, by some estimates, two hundred and fifty thousand jihadis, armed jihadis across Syria, Iraq, Iraq and then Syria, um, they can certainly muster. You know, uh, do, can certainly do that again. Uh, maybe not to the same extent, but they can start something else again. So it's like when you're dealing with America and your Russia or any of Russia, America's adversary, adversaries, so-called adversaries in America's eyes, uh, you have to be on, pay, you have to pay attention all the time. You have to be very uh, alert to any potential attack because that's what they're dedicating themselves to 24-7 uh, is to cause problems for their geopolitical yeah. adversaries. I wonder though if there must have been some back channel talk before this because... The official reports say that the U.S. raid took place with troops who flew in helicopters from northeastern Syria, Syria, which would have taken them across airspace control, patrolled, maybe in part by Turkey further north, but over Syria proper, it's Russian airspace, Russian-Syrian co-controlled yeah. airspace. Yeah, yeah. So I wonder if they, well, they allow. I mean, how do they do that? You know, without. And then they had to get in and then get out. Well, the, Mark, uh, the Russians know know for sure that, that that's what was going on. Yeah. There was communications between the two officially stated that there were communications between the two. It was the, stated, okay. But the Americans yeah. were Americans told the Russians yeah. that they were going to be doing something and to stay out of the stay out of the way type thing, you know. Yeah. So it's not Russia doesn't have a a, a veto or a monopoly or a, or complete control over over that area of, of Syria. They have yeah. they, they they maintain their own spheres of influence to the extent that they can. And they just watch each other, watch each other with suspicion. Um, so yeah, but the yeah you're talking about Groundhog Day. There should be a groundhog that comes out and tells us whether or not 
there's going to be another six weeks of reports about uh, Russia is going to invade Iran, uh, <laughs> Ukraine or whether it's going to end. If he sees a shadow, it's another six weeks of bullshit media headlines saying Russia poised to invade Ukraine X thousand more troops on Ukraine's border or if he doesn't see a shadow then I don't know we're going to get an economic collapse or something like that I don't know somebody should get a new new groundhog a geopolitical groundhog basically is what we need um, Bloomberg interestingly just uh, they explained it afterwards but it's interesting how the whole thing works if you just throw up the Bloomberg uh, JPEG it's got it's just a screenshot um, from Bloomberg, it was up for half an hour, I think. Bloomberg had decided that, if you look, see the top left there, the red box, Bloomberg had decided that had already happened uh, this week for, our, for a while, for about half an hour. Russia had invaded Ukraine, according to Bloomberg, and then they, a few days later, put down a publishing error statement saying that they prepare headlines for many scenarios, and the headline, Russia invades Ukraine, was inadvertently published. We deeply regret the error, but, you know, it definitely got us a few more clicks, So, and that equates to dollars, so it's not all bad. Yeah. Um, In these people's minds, it's already happened anyway. Yeah. Crimea, Donbass, Russia's already invaded. Yeah. Um... Again, they just this. I think this the us.com. I don't know what website us.com is there, Scotty. But I think this report, at least I saw it originally in the Financial Times, but the Financial Times is behind a, a paywall. So this is basically the same report. And this, this is like the next level. This is amping it up a little bit to um, to nukes, nuclear war, because that's obviously the the, the kind of behind the scenes. The the threat behind the scenes is that you have a nuclear war uh, between Russia and the US over Ukraine um, and this report is just adding a bit more scaremongering if you just scroll down a little bit it says the US military and intelligence officials believe that Russia is planning to hold a big nuclear weapons exercise this month as a warning to NATO not to intervene if Putin decides to invade Ukraine <clears throat> uh, so this is General Mark Milley you all know Mark Milley the scary uh, general guy uh, the stereotypical general US general and the Director of National Intelligence told lawmakers in Congress on Thursday past that Putin was planning to start the exercises in mid-February. Uh, and this is opposed to him, the, the annual nuclear exercise that Russia holds, uh, which are usually in the fall, in the autumn. Um, but the US police Putin has decided to hold them earlier this year as a show of strength in the event that he orders his military to further invade Ukraine. Again, is that happening? We'll have to wait and see. I don't think there's been any official statement uh, from the Russian government that they're bringing forward those nuclear exercises uh, to February. But there is a, if you just see that, that small little paragraph there, the US believes that the optimum time for a Russian invasion would be from mid-February to the end of March. So the end of March would, yeah, would give us about six weeks or so. So it looks like we are going to have six more weeks of incessant bullshit in the headlines about Russia invading Ukraine until the end of March at least because then by 
uh, that's the cold months, you know, and the whole narrative is that uh, Russia is going to stage a mechanized military invasion. They need the ground to be frozen and the ground will stay frozen in Ukraine, most of Ukraine, until the end of March. Come April, it starts to thaw. It's not good for rolling tanks over it. So uh, you've got six weeks, basically. I have an interpretation of what this might be getting at, actually. Can you put that headline back so I can see the headline again? Um, yeah, it's oblique, but for what it's worth, John Helmer, who's an American writer, uh, journalist in Moscow, mm -hmm. he does very kind of incisive reporting on what exactly the Washington and Moscow say in their communications with each other and kind of deciphers it quite well. Sometimes he's kind of like... You know, the language is so opaque, who knows what exactly they intend by these things. Anyway, he did an analysis of the U.S. response to Putin's detailed sort of quasi-treaty that he wanted the U.S. to respond to, which had seven concise points. And John Helmer did a kind of a, a breakdown. The backstory to this is that the U.S. did finally respond. We know that from last week, but we also know that they asked Moscow not to publish their response. So it would be, you know, behind closed doors. But then something weird happened in midweek. The US side leaked it to El Pais, the top newspaper in Spain of all places, um, who then published a story about it, along with a link to the PDF mm -hmm. of this document. Um, three days later, Washington confirmed, indeed, that is mm -hmm. a genuine document. That's from us. It's, and he... For what it's worth, Helmer thinks the workaround was because if you look at the, the specific title of the document, it's called a non-paper. So this is our written response, but in future, you, Moscow can never cite this back to us because it's not a real written agreement. Mm -hmm. You see? Because this is the whole thing with Putin. He's like, ever since 1990, when you promised us orally, you would not move one inch closer NATO to Russia. We wanted things clearly laid out in treaties on paper. And this is the way the U.S. is kind of handling that. It's, yeah. it's to put it on paper, but not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that was leaked. That wasn't us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. But uh, in Helmer's analysis, he says that there's a specific point where he concludes the wording of the U.S. response to point number four, which is about the use of intermediate-range nuclear forces. Helmer says this means that Washington is offering to trade the withdrawal of nuclear weapons in Ukraine for Russian withdrawal of uh, nuclear weapons from Crimea and the Black Sea Fleet. I, I'm not sure, I, I can't explain exactly what, but I think that them might be what they're making an oblique reference to. Mm -hmm. um, nukes in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. they're, they're kind of, the, the twist in it is that it's the US which either has and maybe this is why the heckles are up in Moscow these last two months, either has or is threatening to put nuclear-armed, nuclear-capable missiles inside Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And the reason they were maybe in a, in a rush to do so was that in the eventuality of this current situation of a bartering trade-off with Russia, the, the U.S. could respond to Russia, okay, yeah, we'll withdraw our nukes from Ukraine if you withdraw yours from Crimea. But mm -hmm. the... It's a clever. It's, it's like it's clever, but it's not clever. Mm. Moscow saw that coming, mm -hmm. you know, miles off, mm -hmm. which is why they're pushing for some kind of public international commitment here and now on Ukraine, mm -hmm. NATO expansion, the use of missiles, and where they're positioned, because mm -hmm. they could see the sneaking 
perhaps even of nuclear tipped missiles into Ukraine for this eventuality to, to bar her off with, with mm. Russia, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The whole, if I were to say, I mean, we've talked about, we mentioned it in previous shows about our analysis of the, of the whole situation and why it happened. Um, the US has been, like you mentioned, since the since the fall of the Soviet Union, the US has, uh, under the guise of NATO, has been expanding towards Russia against what they said they would do um, since then and has been, you know, threatening Russia, basically, you know, unprovoked for no reason other than they wanted to. They wanted to contain Russia. They wanted to push back against Russia. They wanted to maintain their hegemony in the world. And they saw Russia, especially a Russia and China alliance, as, as being a threat to their to their freedom to operate as they wanted anywhere in the world against anyone. Uh, and it got to the point where, like we mentioned in previous shows, 2014, you had a coup in Ukraine, a US-backed coup in Ukraine uh, that installed a kind of right-wing anti-Russia government and, you know, and, and started building up the military. Uh, when, just after that coup, around that, just immediately after, around the time the coup happened, uh, Russia took Crimea, which was they saw clearly was one of the reasons why uh, the coup was occurring, that they wanted to deprive Russia of uh, access to the Black Sea with its uh, Black Sea fleet in Sevastopol in Crimea. So they took Crimea and incorporated it into the Russian Federation. And they also uh, moved to protect the people in eastern Ukraine and in the Donbass from this, these kind of right-wing neo-Nazi type uh, uh, elements within the, within the new Ukrainian, new US-backed Ukrainian government, that they literally picked, hand-picked themselves. I mean, Victoria Nuland, uh, I think she was the undersecretary, of, was she the secretary of state at the time? I don't know if she was the secretary, she was the undersecretary no, yeah. of state at the time or something. She was for, the state for, department. For, for Europe. For European region, affairs, yeah. yeah. So she, uh, and there's the video, there's the audio of her basically saying, fuck the EU, we don't care what they think. <laughs> As here's, secretary here's, of state for Europe. <laughs> yeah, here's who's going to be the, in the new Ukrainian uh, administration that we have just basically facilitated through a coup. So Russia saw that happening, took action against it. Of course, that spun as Russia annexing Crimea, Russia being... Uh, it's like the opposite of what's actually happening. Like, the US was encroaching on, directly onto the last sphere of influence, right up to the Russian border, of Russia's sphere of influence, basically, and taking it and turning it against Russia. That was a, a definite red line for any country that has the ability to push back against it. And Russia decided to push back against it, and they did the only thing that they the only reasonable thing they could do, which was to protect their interests against this naked, unprovoked, unnecessary, unjustified aggression. But that spun as Russia was aggressing Ukraine. I mean, so everything is topsy-turvy. Everything's turned upside down when you listen to the US government and the US media. Of course, if you just look at some of the facts or look at the details of the situation or, or furnish yourself with the, with the details of the situation, you can see clearly that that's not what they say with their narrative, the US narrative, is not what actually happened. It's the op more or less the opposite. As I've said many times on the show uh, and, and elsewhere, these days, and for quite a long time, you can, on, on major issues, on some, some issues anyway, you can kind of flip the, the official US government narrative on its head and you'll be much closer to the truth than, than the official narrative. Um, but... Yeah, they've been doing it since then. There's a, there's a few interesting, um, if you just throw up uh, NATO 1, this is actually, um, it's a JPEG or PNG. Uh, NATO 1 is an open letter to President Clinton against NATO expansion from June 26, 1997. And it was signed by 
uh, former Hawks, Robert McNamara, Paul Nietzsche, Stansfield Turner, Richard Pipes, Edward Ludak, and many others. Um, so this was an open letter sent by these kind of like bigwigs uh, within the US Washington establishment to, to Bill Clinton about NATO expansion, basically saying uh, in NATO expansion, which the alliance has indicated is open-ended, will inevitably, inevitably degrade NATO's ability to carry out its primary mission and involve U.S. security guarantees to countries with serious border and national minority problems and unevenly developed systems of democratic government. So basically they're saying, you know, NATO expansion in, in the, in the post-Soviet era is a very bad idea. For the, uh, and the implications for the U.S. is that NATO expansion will trigger an extended debate over its indeterminate but certainly high cost and will call into question the U.S. commitment to the alliance, traditionally and rightly regarded as a centerpiece of U.S. foreign policy. Because of these serious objections, and in the absence of any reason for a rapid decision, we strongly urge that the NATO expansion process be suspended while alternative actions are pursued. These include, next one, opening the economic and political doors to the European Union, so suspend the opening of economic and political doors to the European Union, suspend developing enhanced partnership for a peace programme, or no, sorry, this is pro, wasn't it? Uh, let me look at the other one, sorry. What was the last line there? <clears throat> These are alternative actions. So opening economic and political doors of, to the European Union to Central and Eastern Europe, developing enhanced partnership for peace programs, supporting a cooperative NATO-Russian relationship, interesting, and continuing the arms reduction and transparency process, particularly with respect to nuclear weapons and materials, the major threat to US security, and with respect to conventional military forces in Europe. And, this, and the last line of it, Russia does not now pose a threat to its Western neighbours and the nations of Central and Eastern Europe and are not in danger. Are not in danger. For this reason and others cited above, we believe that NATO expansion is neither necessary nor desirable and that this, that this, this ill-conceived policy can and should be put on hold. So that was the Washington, you know, significant figures in the Washington establishment letter to Bill Clinton in 1997, of course, it was somebody overruled them and NATO expansion continued. And if you just go to, to follow on from that, go to WikiLeaks. This is a, this is 10 years later then. Um, this is a, a declassified document. It was declassified by Ambassador William J. Burns, who at the time was ambassador to Russia, U.S. ambassador to Russia, and is today the CIA director, was made CIA director in March, I think, last year, 2021, but for Biden. Um, it makes kind of interesting reading. It's not very long. Um, so following a muted first reaction to Ukraine's intent to seek NATO membership, the uh, Membership Action Plan, MAP, Foreign Minister Lavrov, remember this is 2008, Foreign Minister Lavrov and other senior officials have reiterated strong opposition, stressing that Russia would view further eastward expansion as a potential military threat. NATO enlargement, particularly to Ukraine, remains an emotional and neurologic issue for Russia. I don't know whether you use the word neurologic. Emotional issue for Russia. But strategic policy considerations also underline strong opposition to NATO membership. Strategic policy considerations. I wonder what they were. In Ukraine, these include fears that the issue could potentially split the country in two, leading to violence or even some claim civil war, which would force Russia to decide whether to intervene. 
Additionally, experts continue to claim that Ukrainian NATO membership would have a major impact on Russia's defense industry, Russian-Ukrainian family connections and bilateral relations generally. So this is... You see, this that, is, is, that is the sane the, analyst's assessment of the situation. But when you, when you write that report and you send it higher up, they go, thank you, that is exactly why we need to do this. But when you do it, you can't complain when Russia, you can't, and Russia responds like you know they will because you're, you're consciously and deliberately aggravating them for no good reason and you're causing them problems that neither you nor anyone else with any sense would ever tolerate and would never be seen by anybody with any sense as justifiable or reasonable. And when that country then responds, so basically when you go up and punch someone in the face, you cannot turn around and say, they're hurting me by their reaction. I don't care what way they perceive it. What I care about is what their grand plan is. If they have the facts and have the data, they know that this would be this is totally unfair, unreasonable, totally undiplomatic. You know, it, it's definitely going to provoke Russia. It's it's like poking a bear. It's like it's like provoking someone for no reason other than to provoke them more because you might enjoy it. You might think you get something out of it. You can you can do that if you want. But when you get the obvious reaction, you don't try and spin it in the media and to the people of the world as if you're the one being attacked, mm -hmm. which is what they've done. Isn't it interesting that the person writing that report then is now the CIA director? Exactly. Responsible, essentially, for yeah. much of the U.S. media output about Russia invading Ukraine. He knows full well, or he did know, maybe this is a good case of you know power corrupts or he's acting against his better knowledge or he's just going with the flow and he's not and the CIA director at this point is not the one that comes in no. with his administration doesn't have much sway or he's just a he's just a ceremonial he's another gopher yeah. yeah we just go back to the that document Scotty um, second point under NATO enlargement potential potential military threat to Russia during his annual review of Russia's foreign policy Foreign Minister Lavrov stressed that Russia had to view continued eastward expansion of NATO, particularly to Ukraine and Georgia, as a potential military threat to Russia. While Russia might believe statements from the West that NATO was not directed against Russia, when one looked at recent military activities in NATO countries, the establishment of US forward oper operating locations, etc., they had to be evaluated not by stated intentions, but by their potential. Well, yeah. You can say, oh, you know all those missiles and, and, and weapons that we're putting right on your border? They're not directed at you. Yeah. Well, the media was telling Putin to his face in the 2000s, oh, no, they're not directed at you. Yeah. They're directed at Iran. Right. On and Russia's border. He, there's a famous video where he laughs at the German yeah, reporter telling him right. this. Right, yeah, yeah. Lavrov stressed that maintaining Russia's sphere of influence in the neighborhood was anachronistic. N notice this bit. Lavrov is there ex... Uh, he he's basically admitting that talking about our sphere of influence was an anachronism was like not really relevant and acknowledged that the US and Europe have legitimate interests in the region but while countries are free to make their own decisions about their security and which political and which political military structure to join they need to keep in mind the impact on their neighbors which everybody agrees to which is exactly what lavrov has saying has saying now he's saying exactly the same thing Thir imagine having that job 13 years later Saying that over later. and over and getting the same response. And, and people just blanking and going, uh, whatever. Lavrov emphasized that Russia was convinced that enlargement was not based on security reasons, but a legacy of the Cold War, which it is because NATO is a Cold War organization. 
NATO was formed in the Cold War for Cold War purposes, i.e. against the Soviet Union, against communism. That ended 33 years ago. Yeah. He disputed arguments that NATO was an appropriate mechanism for helping to strengthen democratic governments. Duh. <laughs> he said that Russia understood that NATO was in search of a new mission, but there was a growing tendency for new members to do and say whatever they wanted simply because they were under the NATO umbrella. During a press briefing on 22nd of January, again, this is 2008, in response to a question about Ukraine's, Ukraine's, Ukraine's request for NATO, or NATO membership, uh, I, uh, Lavrov said, a radical new expansion of NATO may bring about a serious political military shift that will inevitably affect the security interests of Russia. Uh, the spokesman went on to stress that Russia was bound with Ukraine by bilateral obligations set forth in a 97 treaty on friendship, cooperation and partnership in which both parties undertook to refrain from participation in or support of any actions capable of prejudicing the security of the other side. Russia and Ukraine signed an agreement to that effect, which was then trashed in 2014 when the U.S. staged a coup in the country. Mm -hmm. The spokesman noted that Ukraine's likely integration into NATO would seriously complicate the many-sided Russian-Ukrainian relations and that Russia would have to take appropriate measures. Uh, opposition, opposition and neurologic Opposition neurologic and concrete. Um, not only does Russia perceive encirclement and efforts to undermine its influence in the region, but it, but it also fears unpredictable and uncontrolled consequences which would seriously affect Russian security interests. Experts tell us that Russia is particularly worried about the strong divisions in Ukraine over NATO membership, with much of the ethnic Russian community against membership could lead to a major split involving violence or at worst civil war. In that eventuality, Russia would have to decide whether to intervene. So this is the other aspect to it, is that the coup in 2014 uh, would likely have caused some kind of civil war, and in a certain sense did. And the whole claim that Russia took Donbass, the eastern part of Ukraine, is bogus. It's those people who are the, who are the most, let's say, uh, pro-Russian uh, and anti-Ukrainian, extreme Ukrainian nationalism, they're the one, they would have done what they did anyway. Yeah, yeah but Lavos was trying to explain to them the objective facts of the situation here, yeah. which hold. They held then and they, and they do today. And they held in 1997 in the earlier statement that those um, senior retired think tankers were trying to warn the Clinton administration. Right. We have an assessment of the objective facts on the ground vis-a-vis Russia-Ukrainian relations. Expanding NATO to include it is just—it's—it's it's a lose-lose. Right. Not you're just, you're just creating chaos and war. We lose as well. Yeah. We don't win from it. Right. That was known 30 years ago in the United States mm -hmm. and understood well in Washington. And someone would. But inexorably, we've come to this situation where the objective facts of what would happen are coming true. Mm -hmm. Of course, all you hear about is the agency of Putin. Mm -hmm. Putin's doing it. Putin's doing it. Putin's led us all this right. way. No. That's it's the reality. This would have happened without Putin. Yeah, it's, and it's all been orchestrated by the U.S. I mean, the, the agency is all on the U.S. side. You know, Russia responds to what America does. If you go to, just go back to the uh, WikiLeaks, uh, that cable, uh, experts tell us, this is down just before six, yeah, oh, a little bit above there. Experts tell us that Russia is particularly worried that this, I already read this, but I just want to reiterate it. 
Experts tell us that Russia is particularly worried that the strong divisions in Ukraine over NATO membership, which much of the ethnic Russian community are against, could lead to a major split involving violence or at worst civil war. In that eventuality, Russia would have to decide whether to intervene, a decision Russia does not want to have to face. That was true in 2018 and it was true in 2014, but the US forced Russia to take a decision yeah. that it did not want to have to take, <clears throat> yeah. and was and was on record as not and, and, and made this these, the, the 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 essence of the, of this document clear. And this comes from obviously the U.S. ambassador at the time and now the CIA director's analysis of it at the time in 2018. But that those, those 2008. points 2008. But those those that those um, ideas and those points were made by the Russians directly to on multiple occasions to the U.S. They basically said, listen, don't come in and basically take over uh, Ukraine. Don't do anything in Ukraine to destabilize Ukraine. The connections between Ukraine and Russia are too strong. Familial ties, ethnic ties, business ties. If you go in there, you're just going to create chaos and you might cause a civil war. And we don't want to have to intervene in a civil war in Ukraine. That's what the Russians said. But then America goes ahead and does precisely that. And then when Russia is forced to intervene minimally, to defend the people of Donbass, who are the ones who would have engaged in a war against the, against the the coup, the new coup uh, administration, uh, Russia is accused of being the aggressor and trying to absorb Ukraine. I, I'm telling you, it's 180 degrees. Yeah. It's exactly the opposite of what they say, and that's yeah. why I keep saying it. People, people, when I say that, people think, "Yeah, that's a funny thing to say." No, I'm serious. Flip it on its head. Yeah. yeah. The, ev- the, the the data. Su- argues for anybody being able to flip official narratives from the US about what's going on in the world on the, on its head to get much closer and sometimes exactly on the truth of the situation. Um, there's also other things in here. Um, uh, We encourage the metal simulating US over blah blah blah. Yeah. Um, point number seven another issue driving Russian opposition to Ukrainian membership is the significant defense industry cooperation the two countries share, including a number of plants where Russian weapons are made. While efforts are underway to shut down or move most of these plants to Russia and to move the Black Sea fleet from Sevastopol to Novosibirsk. Novosibirsk, whatever, earlier than the 2007 deadline, the GOR has made clear that Ukraine's joining NATO would require Russia to make major costly changes to its defense industrial co- uh, cooperation. So this was obviously an attack on the Russian economy and the Russian defense industry as well by taking Ukraine away from it. But the interesting thing about that is is the mention of um, 2017 deadline that was uh, that was when the original 25 year lease right. of Sevastopol by Ukraine you know on a friendly lease of Sevastopol for Russia's Black Sea fleet was destined to end was determined it was, was up for renewal and they had kind of agreed even before this is 2018 2008 let's say this is being mentioned um, Russia at even in 2008 was already uh, beginning plans to move its Black Sea fleet out of Sevastopol huh. in, in, in advance of that deadline when they would no longer have it because it was kind of agreed. Even with a friendly government in Ukraine, it was agreed that uh, between Russia and, and, and a friendly government in Ukraine that Crimea would no longer host the Black Sea Fleet. 
But if that's the case, doesn't that undercut the argument for why the U.S. went in in 2014? Why wouldn't the U.S. just wait until 2017? Exactly. And then Crimea is no longer Russia's access way into the Black Sea. Yeah. Well, they don't. They that's don't, why I don't. They don't that's have, why I wonder if it was really about getting Russia out of Crimea. It was. It was one. Because they would have always had a backup plan. They would still have had Black Sea coastline. Yeah. Sochi. It was one part of it. But I don't think you're probing the depths of the pathology in the American mind here and they're anti-Russian. They knew that Russia was going to move its Black Sea fleet from Sevastopol mm -hmm. in 2017. So before they could do that, they wanted to take it. Right. So there would be no Black Sea fleet. They'd have to rebuild or from scratch. I see. I mean, that's just supremely greedy and stupid. Not greedy. It's extremely aggressive and just, I mean, it's, it's yeah. beyond... It's beyond any reason. Like it's, I mean, you, you, try, you can start to understand just the, the attitude of the Russians towards the Americans, knowing what they know about what they do and how, and how they go about it and the deviousness of them and their, their insanity. I mean, you know, the, the Russians have in recent years come out and more or less said that we're starting to think that these people are insane. Yeah. They're not joking. They're not using that term lightly. These people are nuts. They have lost their minds. I mean, they're, they're, they obviously in that situation were, found it hard to understand to the extent that you're taking Crimea away from um, Russia, or taking all of Ukraine plus Crimea away from Russia, uh, why they wouldn't just wait? Um, on if, if, of course, if, if the Black Sea Fleet in, 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 in Sevastopol and Crimea was a major issue, just wait, we're going to be gone in 2017. No, that's not the only thing. Sure, it'd be good for us to kind of get in there and, and cause you serious problems by basically... Uh, taking over the country in a coup and kicking you out and denying you access to it and putting you on the back foot, basically. It would be cool to do that. But obviously there's there's other aspects in terms of, or even bigger aspects in terms of, um, uh, well, it would give them a problem in terms of uh, the, not just the Black Sea Fleet in Sevastopol and Crimea, but also the, the population in Crimea, a few million people, all... Absolutely, the vast majority of them absolutely see themselves as Russian and speak Russian and see themselves as ethnically Russian and have long desired to actually become part of Russia. Uh, you're screwed with them as well, and they're basically now, you know, kind of a captive, captive of, of this Ukrainian, you know, right-wing anti-Russian government that they installed in 2014. Yeah. And uh, just across the board, it was going to give Russia serious headache, and that's not even mentioning then the implication of putting uh, missiles all over Ukraine. So it's a really seriously dirty, dirty move and dirty plan. Uh, and Russia was absolutely justified in doing, they could have done so much more. They should have done so much, well, not they should have done, but they could have. They would have been entitled or justified in doing so much more than what they actually did. They only did as much as was necessary. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's what you're, that's the kind of thing you're dealing with, you know. Um, Jesus, it's like <clears throat> looking at it over three decades, it's like this steamroller. I mean, uh, and, and we know that Washington knows the objective facts about it. And it seems when you put them side by side with what we've seen happen in recent years, mm -hmm. that a psychopathic mind in Washington used those facts specifically to create that situation where Russia is forced to decide. And here we are today. Russia is basically faced with a decision and you've got the whole media apparatus baiting them, baiting them. Go on, invade, go on, invade. That's the decision they want. They're waiting it towards that. 
was some military action, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's more. <laughs> this this cable is really interesting. Um, there's just a little bit more at the end. Um, if you just go down to point number ten. Um, The GOR, that's um, Russia, basically, has made it clear that it would have to seriously review its entire relationship with Ukraine and Georgia in the event of NATO inviting them to join. This could include major impacts on energy, economic and political military engagement, with possible repercussions throughout the region and into Central and Western Europe. Russia would also likely revisit its own relationship with the alliance and activities in the NATO-Russian Council and consider further actions in the arms control arena, including the possibility of complete withdrawal from the CFE and the INF treaties and more direct threats against U.S. missile defense plans. Uh, And the last point at number 11, more or less, Isabel Francois, director of the NATO Information Office in Moscow, said she believed that Russia had accepted that Ukraine and Georgia would eventually join NATO and was engaged in long-term planning to reconfigure its relations with both countries and with the alliance. However, Russia was not yet ready to deal with the consequences of further NATO enlargement to its south. She added that while Russia liked the cooperation with NATO in the NATO-Russia Council, Russia would feel it necessary to insist on recasting the NATO-Russia relationship, if not completely withdraw, withdraw completely from the NRC in the event of Ukraine and Georgia joining NATO. So they knew all this. They knew everything. And they knew the, all of the implications. They knew all of the dangers. They knew the dangers to Western Europe of, of you know, um, of, of pushing Russia in this way by pushing NATO, pushing the US, its, its adversary, its stated, declared adversary, for no good reason, uh, right up to Russia's borders and, and putting missiles in, those, in the countries right on Russia's borders. They knew it all long before 2008, this is 2008, but they knew it before then, which is why that letter to Bill Clinton uh, from those hawks, basically former hawks, were all saying, really bad idea, don't do it, don't do it. So who did it? Who, against all evidence, against all reason, against all sense of uh, ideas of security, international security, peace in Europe, who, who saw that the one way to screw all of that up, to screw up security, international security, screw up peace in Europe, uh, to ignite the flames of potential war, to cause war and death, who saw all of that and said, yeah, that's what we're going to do. Who did it? Who said it? While many voices in the overt political establishment in the US were saying, don't do it. Somehow someone went ahead and did it. Take your pick. Um, Newland's husband, Donald Kagan, um... Charles Krauthammer, now deceased, um, John McCain, uh, Brzezinski. Yeah. I don't think – that letter is exceptional. The one in 97 asking Bill Clinton to reconsider this is exceptional. Washington as a whole mm-hmm. you know, really does see itself as a shining city on a hill. Mm-hmm. They have a world outlook. It's an empire. They are Rome. Mm-hmm. These people – are totally infused with and it. And they want the same fate as Rome, do they? Apparently. Because that seems to be what Apparently. you get. They, 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 they think they know it and they think they can avoid it. But it's, it's the hubris that comes with the territory of being, quote, the new Rome. Do you know who John, George Cannon is? Yeah. Uh, he, he basically pioneered containment. 
He was Mr. Basically, yeah. One of um, the six wise men. Right. Post-war. Put up the New York Times. This is it from even further back now. We're going back 25 years. Um, this is by Friedman, who is, you know, a bit of a hawk himself. He's not much much of a politician, I suppose, uh, as a historian or whatever, or a political commentator. But he was called X. George Friedman was... Um, or George um, Cannon, sorry, was, yeah, like you just said, the kind of one of the founders of NATO and the idea of he was there at the creation of NATO, part of it, and the idea of containment of the Soviet Union throughout the whole Cold War era. And this is Friedman, his comment, an article, opinion, obviously, in New York Times, 1998, on NATO expansion around the time that letter was written to, to Clinton. So he says, so he calls up, Kennan, who at this point is 94 years old, he says he's as sharp as ever, and he wants his reaction to the Senate's ratification of NATO expansion. So despite all of the pushback against NATO expansion, the Senate ratifies NATO expansion in 1998. Uh, and this man, who's the architect of America's successful containment of the Soviet Union and one of the great American statesmen of the 20th century, was ready with an answer. And here's what he said. I think it is the beginning of a new Cold War. I think the Russians will gradually react quite adversely and it will affect their policies. I think it is a tragic mistake. There was no reason for this whatsoever. No one was threatening anybody else. This expansion would make the founding fathers of our country turn over in their graves. We have signed up to protect a whole series of countries even though we have neither the resources nor the intention to do so in any serious way. NATO expansion was simply a light-hearted action by a Senate that has no real interest in foreign affairs. What bothers me is how superficial and ill-informed the whole Senate debate was. Uh, I was particularly bothered by the reference to Russia as a country dying to attack Western Europe. 1998. Don't people understand? Our differences in the Cold War were with the Soviet communist regime. And now we are turning our backs on the very people who mounted the greatest bloodless revolution in history to remove the Soviet regime. And Russia's democracy is as far advanced, if not farther, as any of these countries have just signed up to defend from Russia. It shows so little understanding of Russian history and Soviet history. Of course there is going to be a bad reaction from, from Russia. And then the NATO expanders will say that we always told you that is how the Russians are. <laughs> Which is precisely what happened. Which is... Precisely what And this happened. guy wrote the book on it, right? He was yeah. like Mr. Cold War. Mr. Cold War. But isn't it interesting <clears throat> that he himself, in his 90 years, and was once U.S. ambassador to the USSR, actually, went to his grave <laughs> ignorant of the actuality, the geopolitical actuality. He really thought this was the ideological war between those communists and us. Western free capitalist. Well, for most of it, most of it was, you know. Ah, but when you have the exact same underlying pattern remain in place four decades hence. Well, he's just saying it's, it's, a, it's a really, it's a terrible idea. It's a bad idea. Why are these people doing it? He's criticizing them all, but he, he's not giving an explanation as to why. He's not asked why, why they're doing this, right? But it means that he genuinely believed it was to contain communism. At right? the time. Yes. Well, it was. <sighs> but the two go together. You can't separate the two. But when the same things continue, then you, you find out. Well, he communism. died in 2003. So. 
They didn't see all of this. He always saw was the. the Sanat, need, well, what I'm getting at is that he was used by people who did know better. Yeah, people who understood the essence of Mackinder's theories. We'll go down to the. He who controls the heartland controls the world island. Blah blah blah. Yeah, we'll just go down to Mackinder the... wrote that pre-communism. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, <laughs> of mean, course, it's about domination of the globe and then you have a narrative over the top of it and it's the narrative isn't just made up it's not spurious it's not right because there was obviously a a problem with communism and it, uh, in the sense of in the in the way that it was and at least yeah. whether it was communism or not the way it was practiced and the way people lived their lives in 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 communist countries and stuff i mean you can't deny the experience they had compared to the experience people were having in the, sure. in, in the west do you know what i mean so there was a rationale, is what I'm saying, that was fairly, was fairly uh, convincing and did have yeah. facts to back it up, evidence, apparent evidence yeah. to back it up, that this was an ideological war rather than uh, a, a geopolitical one just for pure control, you know. But okay. hold that thought. I'll just show you. At, uh, just It's the very last sentence in that article, Scott. It was just, just down the very bottom. Just in answer to your question, as he said goodbye to me on the phone, Mr. Cannon added just one more thing. This has been my life, and it pains me to see it so screwed up in the end. So the best he could do was say that it has all been screwed up. Yeah. At the point where he was seeing, uh, he died in 2003, uh, he, had com he had some very negative comments about the Iraq invasion as well, although he died before it happened. Um, but in, two in 1998, five years before he died, and seeing the, the Senate ratify the, the NATO expansion to Western Europe, he's saying this is all screwed up. I mean, this is this is diverging completely from reality. Is what he was saying. What are these people doing? You know. So yeah, at, to to a certain extent, he he maybe realised that he had been not that he'd been used, but that there are other people who were exploiting or were um, using the situation for an agenda that was not the agenda that he was pushing. Right? Because he, I think that's a big one to ask people to really go. You know what I mean? Especially someone who spent like, you know, 70 years of his life probably uh, involved directly in it. And especially through the whole Cold War era to expect them to kind of like admit to themselves that it was all just for, that was only, you know, to, to oh, no, remove no. the yeah, communist uh, thing completely. I get it. He went to his death a believer or a, Believe, a, a disillusioned believer by the end. That what he had done was But th th this right speaks thing. to a, the fundamental lack of insight because pre-Soviet Russia, I'm telling you, I read a book on this. Mm -hmm. I don't have data to hand, but I think even Kennan himself, his father or uncle, yeah. was a missionary in Imperial Russia. Mm -hmm. And they were saying the same kinds of things. These Russians, man, we got to either keep them back or get in here and regime change this place. This is a problem for us, blah, 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 blah. He, he would have grown up in a, in a culture mm. that said similar things in this, in the ideological set of, values that precedes right, the so, communist war. Well, so back preceding, preceding the, the Cold War, pre-World War II, uh, what was the West? Pre-World War One, before Russia went Bolshevik. Yeah, pre-World War One. yeah, before 1917. What, what was the ideological, what was the problem, uh, the West problem with uh, Tsarist Russia, let's say? Oh, they said such similar things. Um... No, they would they speak, couldn't they accuse would, them of communism for a No, they would speak out of both corners of their mouths. They would say they're backward, they're not democratic, um, 
they're not really Christian. They didn't. They had a problem with orthodoxy. Um, let's send missionaries over. We can convert them to our ways. Get them right. You know, mm-hmm. at the at the other corner of their mouth, it was like this place is too big. Holy smokes, this is going to be a serious threat to you know our long term interest. That kind of thing. Uh, if I knew we were going to talk about it, I'd definitely have the book to hand. The book, uh, I'll look up the name of it. Um, it's such an eye opener, and the same, the same. Washington is a is a is patrician families like Rome at the end, you know. Mm. And Kenan has relatives in Imperial Russia, yeah, yeah. saying similarish things, but in the different terminology and rationale of its day about the problem of Russia's size, and its la- at the same time, other corner of the mouth of its lack of proper religion proper view well, of the world they're not us it's not really credible like other. proper religion like it's a, closer to the original christianity than oh, i can't remember the name of the book Damn it. anyway it's an awesome book because we'll put it, it in it the show notes 150 years of perspective of how washington views russia we'll put it in the show notes yeah yeah um anyway that i i know yeah we, we shouldn't uh, you're right i shouldn't criticize canon with with hindsight that's genuine. It's heartfelt, but it it speaks to the fundamental lack of insight that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. That you don't have the culture in Washington that you do in Moscow that can assess a situation objectively. Even though my my own interests are in the center of it, Lavrov is a Russian. Of course, he, you you would say, of course, he's going to say those things about it. Mm-hmm. Well, what he said in two thousand and eight is exactly what what happened. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the response to that, people, well, yeah, he was an agent involved in helping that along. Well, that's, no, that's BS. It wouldn't, if it wasn't no. Lavrov, it would be someone else no, of course, in yeah. Russia. Um, <clears throat> no, I mean, he outlined what was going to happen. Not only he outlined, but um, think tankers and politicians and analysts in the U.S. outlined what was going to yeah. happen. So what's incredible is that, of course, the, it's not incredible. It is incredible, I suppose, if, if <laughs> to think that people don't know anything about this extant history stuff that's on the internet it's in official records it's 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 part of official history people who don't know that <clears throat> um think that it can be sold the the bullshit narrative that we're getting today which is that russia is uh, the aggressor blah 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 when you know again 19 pick your pick your pick your decade 1998 or 2008 at either of those two times over a period, you know, that's literally, you know, or you go back 20 years, you know, from 2008, you go back to the fall of the Soviet Union. But at any point during that time, it was said, made explicit by Russia and known explicitly by uh, U.S. governments, U.S. administrations, that if we follow this course, we're going to run into a conflict with Russia. And this course doesn't have to be followed. It'll be yeah. followed uh, just almost whimsically or superficially for no real advantage that anybody's willing to talk about at least. Uh, so why would we do it? And then when they go ahead and follow that ridiculous, mindless, reckless course towards provoking Russia, Russia then responds in the way they predict Russia was going to respond, as any as you would predict anybody was going to respond. You know, it's like write up a paper saying, if I go and attack my neighbor's house, my neighbor is likely to attack me back or to defend his house. And here's all the consequences for the neighborhood that would happen. You can, you know, mm-hmm. work out your whole scenario mm-hmm. and then come to the conclusion that, yeah, I don't really have any interest in attacking my neighbor and certainly all those negative consequences will be bad for everybody. 
should be the end of the story, right? Mm. But then you find that you decide to go ahead and do it. And then when your neighbor responds to being attacked in the way that you predicted, you blame him. That's it, in a nutshell. Yeah. And we have a comment here some, regarding the book. Aeneas says, would it be this book? Towards the Flame, Empire, War, and the End of Tsarist Russia. Nope. Don't. It's oh, a well. very specific niche book. It's, it's specifically about how official Washington, and maybe more broadly the American in, intellectual scene, so there's some cultural stuff as well, how it perceived Russia over a span of 150 years. Um, it's, it's fascinating because there's a set, it, it doesn't just obviously give you the comparison with Cold War perspectives with today, which are obviously very similar. And all that's removed is essentially, as they, as they would say it, well, Russia is still the same essential thing. They just remove the ideological cloak. Same, same beast, you know. But what makes it even more fascinating is that the preceding era had the same attitudes in official Washington. Mm-hmm. To non-comp, so late Tsarist Imperial Russia. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's it's. Uh, I can't even remember a keywords. I'm afraid to give you. The, so I'll have to just the, stick it. Yeah. Up. I mean, the scenario you're presenting there of pre-Soviet, pre-communist Russia, not Soviet Russia, well, well pre-communist Russia, so pre-First World War, that the West, for a, at least for several decades, had the same attitude towards Russia as they did during the Cold War under the guise of fighting against communism and in Cold War Part Two, now under the guise of fighting against Russian aggression. So the question is, um, what you're, the kind of, I suppose the question you're bringing up then in that context when you see like pre-communism mm-hmm. and post-communism, the attitude to Russia is the same. Does that suggest then that communism as a rationale for fighting, uh, just as an interim period or as the middle period of this long war against Russia by the West, does the communism thing just stick out as a kind of like a plausible, a, a burly plausible narrative? Should it stick out as a burly plausible narrative? You know, if I've been attacking again, I'll use my dodgy uh, attacking my neighbor analogy. If I've been attacking my neighbor for thirty years, in the first ten years, I had no good reason other than I just like wanted his stuff. Yeah. In the second 10 years, it was because he had uh, b- become a jihadi, according to me, and, and I was fighting against him for, for religious and uh, other ideological reasons. And then he dropped his religion, and the last 10 years, he just went back to being an, a normal well, person. And I just, my reason then was just because I want, the same reason, which was, go ba- or go back to the first reason, which was I wanted his stuff, or he's an aggressor, or some made-up story, right? Mm-hmm. If there's the middle part of a, an ideological war, that was justified, does that actually stand up? If before that and after that, you're still attacking the person for reasons other than that, which are just kind of more spurious, made-up reasons. Well, look at it this way. If in the first 10-year period, you're beating the crap out of him, and he's basically taking it, just taking it, and in the second year, he says, you know what? I'm going to get armed. I'm going to call myself the Neighborhood Community Liberation Army. Mm. We're going to have a red uniform with stars on it, and we're going to fight back at these mofos. Mm. That's basically it. Now, it's not just that, but 
1917 was weird. Yeah. It wasn't just organic, mm -hmm. internal. Russians just didn't embrace this extreme ideology no. that gave rise to the USSR. There was a lot of stuff going on. There was there wasn't even a civil war. It was a there were actually three equal parts to the Russian civil war. It was so insane. There was the white traditional Tsarist. Mm -hmm. That's what they called themselves, the whites, not that they were white. Mm -hmm. um, trying to maintain the status quo, you had the Bolsheviks, the red communist ideo ideologues coming in. They're, no, no, this is not just revolution here. It's going to be revolution everywhere. Mm -hmm. And you had the Greens. Green. No one knows about the Greens. Mm -hmm. but the Greens were basically synonymous today with the vast hinterland of the United States. That's red. It's basically people not in the cities farmers, working class, the working class who weren't pulled in in the cities, mm -hmm. everywhere else in Russia. And they armed themselves, they organized. It was a, that's why it was such a brutal event mm -hmm. that marked Russia for the next 80 years mm. because there was a tri-civil war between three major Well, there is, there is suggestion that was, to one extent or another, manipulated. I mean, the, the evidence for it is fairly scant, although there have been books written on it, but... Um, that the October Revolution or the Bolshevik Revolution in, in Russia was to uh, at least some extent facilitated and encouraged and by outside forces, i.e. Western, Western forces, you know. Um, yeah. And of course, it's never as simple as people think it's imposed on a country when you say that it's, when you say something happens like that where it's facilitated from the outside, you think, well, uh, that doesn't sound plausible because you can't just, you know, you can't just go in and, and, and start it have a country start a civil war all by itself you have to it has to be quite quite involved you know uh, to, to get that to happen but very often it's um it's exploiting conditions within the country or groups within the country so there's there's a there's the potential i suppose I mean, there's, there is the potential uh, in any country for a civil war if you can exacerbate the tensions and that's where the external influence oh, yeah. comes from you know yeah. what i mean and then if you throw in weapons and uh, you know pile some or push some people into the country uh, with weapons and, and money uh, yeah you can you can start something going and once you start something going like that it can quickly snowball exactly. so it doesn't mean you have to organize the whole civil war all yourself you know what I mean it's, you don't, that's the way some people interpret it like when they say uh, it's, it's an oversimplified idea of external influences um, you know, facilitating, let's say, a civil war in a country. It's not that the external influence or the external forces were actually did the civil war, fought the civil war. They simply provoked it yeah, but at a time when it was right. It's maybe. a key element, though. If, for example, if this kind of thing had happened in France in 2018, the, the French flag would now be a yellow vest. Mm. If there had been an external supplier of weapons mm. and money mm. and media support, mm. it's a it was the regime was toast. Yeah, same in Canada right now. If you if you if you stoked it, you have to stoke with violence to get Canadians to go from just being nice protesters yeah. to actually wanting to do something about the situation. Turn into Trucker it, it is ripe right now. All things being equal, and there was uh, an international marketplace for coming in and just adding, you know, the money and the weapons it needs. It'd be a very cost-effective way to convert an entire country into a new regime. Mm. And that goes for many places in the West at the moment. Yeah, that's why they're so paranoid about it, right? That's why they keep talking about Russia. They keep talking about Russia, but Russia Russia's doesn't influence. do what it's accused of. If it would have, France would have fallen by now, Canada, yeah. and who knows where else. 
America does it, though. Yeah. But maybe we're, we're getting too far. But the, the basic change from communist time to modern Russia is enough alone. Um, as Putin has pointed out many times, in the 90s, we capitulated to the point that there were actual CIA people in, in our cabinet. They ran the country. We gave them, they had the full, and they ran it into the ground. Russia reached its, um, they basically reached uh, the bo bottom of the barrel in 1998 when they defaulted on their loans to the IMF. And that's when they decided on NATO expansion. Yeah, at their weakest point, yeah. 1998, then Putin is elevated it. to Prime Minister in 1999. Then he's caretaker president. That was the beginning of something in Russia coalesced around, okay, look, Yeltsin and his family, Yeah, let's get, let, we have to... But the idea of running it into the ground, yeah, I mean, when it was under the stewardship of the US and its, and its allies and its, um, its proxies uh, for several years in the 90s, yeah, running, it was running into the ground because those people were not, not Russian. They had no allegiance to the country, they didn't care about the country, and that's the whole, that's where, you know... The idea of nationalism comes from that you have to have people who care about, live in the country, care about the country, see themselves, identify as, you know, ethnically or, uh, you know, um, ethnically from there and, and, and see that country as their own. So they have a, a sense of uh, respect and, and a desire to have the country improve because it's theirs. It's, it's as close to them as, as their own skin type thing, you know. But you put in somebody else, you put in other groups in their country and they will destroy it. And that's the purpose of those groups, of funneling groups into, into other countries that you want to destroy because you can be sure they'll destroy it because they don't give a shit about the country because they're not from the country. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think Putin's been onto this since very yeah. early on. Yeah, yeah. You know, the... And, you know, I, I accept the kind of basic explanation of it is that he began by testing the waters and he's... He himself has evolved to this point of a very hard-nosed attitude yeah. towards the West. But um, there's clips that pop up now and again. Somebody posted one, I think, on the Russia Insight YouTube channel. Um, it's Putin in 2002 speaking in a closed meeting that happened to be filmed. And the, the subs say that he's telling a bunch of wealthy Russian businessmen, you know, the time is coming where you don't want to have your assets abroad. You're, you're going to be biting dust or something like that. You don't want to be left, you don't want to be left with nothing when that time comes. You're talking mm. about sanctions mm. and what the targeted stuff, what the kinds of things that mm -hmm. they're going to do in response probably to me putting my yeah. foot down. Yeah, yeah. yeah, well, I mean, they were well-versed. They, they watched America do all sorts of everything they did during the Cold War in the name of fighting communism. They did a lot of the stuff that they've been doing over the past 20 years uh, in different countries, Iraq, Libya, Syria, uh, and the, the tactic, tactics against Russia and, and China. I mean, the U.S. did all of that for, the for most of the, of the Cold War era uh, against different countries around the world, and the Soviets just kind of sat there and you know, watched it all happen. So they had a good lesson for several decades and how America and it progressively, you know, did it more and more as it got more and more influence and more and more power. It kept doing it, you know. Um, so yeah, they were not. It wasn't hard to figure out, let's say. Um, but again, the problem in, in the West is that none of the West, no, nobody in the West, especially the journalists and politicians and, and most politicians, 
uh, don't know this history, don't don't understand it, don't see it from that perspective. They don't see it from a perspective from outside the US. They only see it from internally, from a very subjective perspective. And of course, they're fed on lies and the idea of the American dream and American freedom and democracy and all that kind of stuff. And um, th their view of the world is, is very detached from reality. And I think reality is going to come back and bite them very soon. It's, it is right now, I think, over this Russia-Ukraine situation. Uh, they're finding they're running up against a reality that they've ignored for a long time. Do you think we got a clue from the US government this week about what they're going to do next in the form of that um, declassified intelligence report that says Russia could at any moment conduct a false flag attack in or near Ukraine? Do you want to? Yeah. Do you want to play this? Yeah. Um, which one? We've got Curveball Kirby at the <clears throat> Pentagon or Ned CIA Price? Maybe he's the Alex Jones one, yeah. The thing is, that one's seven minutes long, though. Mm. Uh, Matt Lee, of course, his responses are funny, but that exchange overall seven minutes. Well, we, just, we can do a little bit of it. Okay, can you play this, Scotty? This is the State Department spokesman, Ned Price, who was, in fact, a CIA errand boy for in the, in the 2000s. We have previously noted our strong concerns regarding Russian disinformation and the likelihood that Moscow might create, seek to create, a false flag operation to initiate military activity. Now, we can say that the United States has information that Russia is planning to stage fabricated attacks by Ukrainian military or intelligence forces as a pretext for a further invasion of Ukraine. One possible option the Russians are considering, and which we made public today, involves the production of a propaganda video, a video with graphic scenes of false explosions, depicting cor corpses, crisis actors pretending to be mourners, and images of destroyed locations or military equipment, entirely fabrica fabricated by Russian intelligence. To be clear, the production of this propaganda video is one of a number of options that the Russian government is developing as a fake pretext to initiate and potentially justify military aggression against Ukraine. We don't know if Russia will necessarily use this or another option in the coming days. We are publicizing it now, however, in order to lay bare the extent of Russia's destabilizing actions towards Ukraine and to dissuade Russia from continuing this dangerous campaign and ultimately launching a military attack. <laughs> Russia has signaled it's willing to continue diplomatic talks as a means Positive. to de-escalate, but actions... Um, yeah, that, I mean, he's... He said there's various others, there's only one of, of many possible scenarios, possible plans that Russia has, but apparently this is the best one. Yeah. This is the most important one or the most likely one, because that's the only one we're talking about. We're not mentioning the others. And what he's doing, for just for people who, who obviously, well, people who haven't picked up on it, although it'll be hard not to pick up on it, but he's basically voicing there uh, something that has, until now, over the entire, most of the year of the internet, and until today, I suppose, until the time that he said this, he's voicing something that was uh, immediately dismissed as crazy tinfoil hat conspiracy theory, mm -hmm. that anybody, anywhere, or any major nation, or any, you know, would basically fake complete with crisis actors fake some kind of attack an attack 
a bloody attack with crisis actors. That means fake dead bodies, fake blood, uh, fake, you know, people crying, fake victims, all yeah. that kind of stuff. Um, <coughs> and until, like I said, until now, that was a domain of crazy conspiracy theories. But apparently it's a reality, according to the State Department, or the Department of Defense, actually. Um, can we skip forward to the end of the statement? I'm not sure if you're going to be able to see where it is, though. I, I it's can't about remember. in the middle, no? Or go from the middle. I mean, this is like crisis actors, really? This is like to, to confirm. Conduct a false flag operation in eastern Ukraine. So that, Matt, to your question, is an action that Russia has already well, taken. It's an action that you say that they have taken, but you have shown no evidence to, 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 to confirm that. And I'm going to get to the next question here, which is, what is the evidence that they... I mean, this is like crisis actors, really? This is like Alex Jones territory you're getting into. <laughs> um, what evidence do you have to support the idea that there is some propaganda film in the, in, in the making? Now, this is derived uh, from information known to the U.S. government, intelligence information that we have declassified. I think you well, know... Okay, well, where, where is it? Where, where is this information? It is intelligence information that we have declassified. Well, where is it? Where is the declassified information? I just delivered it. <laughs> no, you made a series of allegations and would statements. You, would you like us to print it out the topper? Because you will see a transcript of this briefing that you can print out for that, yourself. That's not evidence, Ned. That's you saying it. That's not evidence. I'm sorry. <laughs> you can't, you can't what understand that. What him, uh, him I would saying like to see some proof that, 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 that you can show that... that Matt, you have that, been that, that shows you, that that, that you, shows that the Russians are doing this. Ned, I've been doing this for. A I long know that time, was my point. As, you as, you as have you, know. you you have been doing this for quite a while. You know I that have. when we declassify intelligence That's information, right. and I we do so in, in a means. In we do and so. I, and, we do so with an eye to protecting that, that sources Kabul and methods. Is not going to fall. I, I remember a lot of things. So where, where where is the declassified information other than you coming out here and saying? Matt, I'm sorry you don't like the format, uh, but we have it's declassified. It's not the format; it's the content. I'm sorry you don't like the content. I'm sorry <laughs> you. I'm sorry like you are doubting is. the information that is in the possession of the U.S. government. No, I, I, what I'm telling you is that this is information that's available to us. We are making it yeah. available to you uh, <laughs> in I, order uh, for a couple reasons. One, he just goes on and it's just back and forth, and he can't get an answer to his question. It's like, where is the evidence? Can you give me any evidence? Can you show me any evidence that this is uh, that Russia is planning this? But the interesting thing, he said the Alex Jones thing. You're in the Alex Jones territory yeah. here, and Matt Lee there is kind of like incredulous because he's like, dude, because the response to him saying uh, to Matt Lee saying this is Alex Jones territory, um, he said. This is the response was no. This is the information that the U.S. government has. So the U.S. government has. At least now, and maybe we can assume that in the past, evidence that some things that Alex Jones and people like him were saying, that they had that information as well, that they that it was valid information, despite the fact that Alex Jones was obviously has become the the poster boy for cons crazy conspiracy theories and everything's uh, all made up, and he's just he's crazy, he's nuts. What he says is is, is, is totally detached from reality. But now it's not because it's information that the U.S. government and intelligence agencies have. Yeah. It, it's harsh on Alex Jones because he's infamous for saying that Sandy Hook mm. was crisis actors, fake, staged, there were no real deaths, et cetera, et cetera. He's since retracted it very publicly, clearly, you know. I think he was taken to court as well. It was a court case. Um, hence, 
the dying of Alex Jones, that people would have heard that nationwide in America, the reference of Sandy Hook, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But the thing is, where did that concept come from? False flag stuff in the alternative media only ever became kind of an angle of looking at domestic incidents in the United States because there was a five-decade-long history of the United States intelligence services conducting these kinds of operations abroad. Mm -hmm. And let's go fast forward to today. We don't have to go far back. The White Helmets right. were caught. BBC and other outlets basically admitted they were also swept up in these staged operations where there were actors huge at the alleged scene of a Syrian bombing or a Russian bombing of a hospital. Or a chemical attack. Yeah. So it's very much a real thing. But yeah, like you said, the the code, the omerta, the code of silence on this is you don't talk about it. Right, or you dismiss but it. But on the international arena, Russia busted it wide open, yeah, so to speak, by showing evidence that the United States indeed engages on this in exactly this kinds of thing abroad. Right. Yeah. And now it's all flipped back around and they're trying to use that against Russia preemptively mm. such that if there is a provocation in Ukraine that does require a Russian military intervention, they're suggesting that whatever Russia shows you about an atrocity mm -hmm. that's taking place in Crimea, Donbass or elsewhere, mm -hmm. it's not real. Russia has staged that mm -hmm. so that when it responds... It's, quote-unquote, justified internationally. So it's bizarre. What's bizarre to me is that they put it out there and it was allowed. We noticed that it was carried as a headline at the top of CNN, BBC, yep, BBC. The Guardian, yep. New York Times for about 12 hours. Mm -hmm. And then it just went away. And mm -hmm. the next thing came in this week. Mm -hmm. They shouted it, but not too loud either. Yeah, yeah. They, then they, keep it going. they must, I don't know, they must know themselves. Like, this is a risky play. Yeah. Maybe, but they're so consumed with their own, you know, oh, yeah. uh, abilities to, to to control and push the narrative that they, they they figure they can they can keep it keep it on 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 the level. But um, I mean, it it, it obviously for any thinking person, there aren't many thinking people out there these days. But for any thinking person who accept that you know that's a reality, the next step is okay. Does America ever do that? Has America ever conceived of that? All the allegations over the years of America having engaged in these kind of false flag attacks, is there any validity to them, given that the US government has just said that they are valid, just not by us, in this case by Russia? So if it's a thing, has America ever done it? So do we have to revisit all of the claimed false false flag attacks of whatever kind, terror attacks, anything, uh, and, and look to see if there's any validity to them? And the next step is, okay, they're talking about Russia making a video. But if you're into that kind of thing, surely you uh, an option would be not just control it in the sense of making a video and, and putting the video out there, but actually carrying out uh, an attack, a real attack. So it's not faked, but it's faked in the sense of, because the essence of a false flag attack is not that the attack that there's no actual attack. Usually the, the essence of a false false flag attack yeah. is that the attack actually happens people die but the person that it's ascribed to is not the person who did it in yeah. fact it's the pe person who's accusing others of having done this is the are the yeah. ones who have done it that's the basic idea of a terror attack and that gets to things like sandy hook and and other things where um it's not that people kids didn't die or in any other terror attack people weren't killed it's that who did it 
is the person or persons that uh, the government or the the authorities say did it. Did are they the ones who actually did it, or does it was the was it the authorities themselves? Yeah, is, is the question. This yeah, is yeah. a simple idea. It's a simple question. It's not an unreasonable thing to suggest, except. Yeah. If you just think, if you've been, uh, if you've been convinced or been programmed to believe that those things can never happen, that no one would ever do such a thing, that no human being would ever conceive of attacking and killing someone, and then blaming someone else. Yeah, but that does happen in in life, right? I mean, not even in in, in mundane life. Yeah, I, it's fascinating that the conflation of those two things—a false flag attack being actually an actual event in which the flag of someone else, it's usually your, your real opponent, is planted on it with something else, which is the complete creation out of whole cloth of an atrocity mm. um, from scratch. It, I say it's interesting to conflate the two because that is exactly what most Westerners, Americans, not only Americans, Westerners at all, who do go down this rabbit hole, in quotes, they end up making that mistake. They're confused by the two. They use the two terms interchangeably. It's different things. Um, and here you have, and of course, it's been bashed in the last 15, 20 years of the internet age as fake news, conspiracy. outrageous conspiracy theories online, um, <clears throat> roundly attack in official media and official culture, which, you know, looks down its nose at it and basically scoffs at it. If not, it, it never even... They didn't even need to outright criminalize it, although there were actual mm -hmm. court cases that came out of the Sandy Hook thing. Mm -hmm. But in general, it's just, you know, <laughs> that's lunacy. Well, I mean, as that goes, go ahead. Well, that, that's a kind of culture of, that, it speaks to the confusion in a culture, in a population that knows something is wrong, that knows that there are, are habitual atrocities that are committed, that are, there's questions about them. Mm -hmm. They're really dubious. The, the major mass shootings in the United States, uh, any number of these t terrorist attacks ascribed to ISIS and Al-Qaeda in mm -hmm. the last 20 years, mm -hmm. you, just, you just need to read two reports, official reports, side by side to see, well, there's discrepancies for yeah, God's yeah. sake, you know. Yeah. And it bred a culture of questioning, which the, the official culture responded by saying, outraged conspiracy theorists, well, you're all mental. It, it is. It's a whole topic and uh, almost... Uh, area of research onto itself you know what i mean because there's so many different ways that it can happen you can if you take the idea of just a false flag attack it has very it has different permutations you know different Maybe applica different applications yeah. i mean you can have uh like al-qaeda uh you could say that when if al-qaeda carries out some kind of a terror attack somewhere um it doesn't mean that that wasn't al-qaeda or some people who swore an oath to al-qaeda and went and did something went and went and killed some people or planted a bomb or blew something up but you have to go back to do they have any help yeah who helped them to do it how did they get through those checkpoints how did they you know that kind of thing you know so there's different variations of yeah. you know there's the there's the pure one almost like the, the this guy in the, in the pentagon is saying where it's just made up by your enemy or this evil actor, whoever you describe it as, uh, and they just make up a video and they, they fabricate the whole thing and put it out there. And then there's another angle where uh, Russia could actually uh, send in some Russian operatives into Ukraine and kill people in Donbass, the people they're supposedly want to protect. Yeah. So then you have real footage and they could allow Ukrainian media in to show that it's not fake. These are real dead people. This is verified as this was an actual bombing or whatever. 
but the, the narrative is that it's blamed on Ukrainian forces, which justifies a Russian response. Um, it also has echoes of, of 9-11, you know. I mean, not going into deep conspiracy theories about 9-11, but, I mean, it's officially recognized that Saudi Arabia probably had something to do with the 9-11 attackers. But, so, to the extent that Saudi Arabia was, to, to whatever extent, responsible for the 9-11 attacks, that was a false flag. The narrative was makes it a false flag attack because uh, Al-Qaeda was blamed rather than Saudi Arabia. You know what I mean? There's a separation completely from yeah. between Saudi Arabia and Al-Qaeda, but the, the U.S. government accepted, admitted, well, it's a court case basically where, you know, people, I don't know if it ever got resolved, but uh, victims of, uh, family members of the victims of, 9/11, of the 9-11 attacks took a court case against Saudi Arabia for being responsible for killing their, their family members in the yeah. 9-11 attacks. But it was, well, who was it? Al-Qaeda associated with Iraq, with Afghanistan. It was, Af- it was basically Ar- Afghanistan and then Iraq who were responsible for 9-11, right? Right. That's, that's was that a false flag? I mean, if you put Iraq and the Af- Afghan and Iraq flag on 9-11, is that a false flag then? To the extent that it wasn't really, or certainly it wasn't Iraq. Certainly it wasn't Afghanistan, the country. It was a bunch of, you have to put an Al-Qaeda flag on it. Yeah to follow the official narrative, but there's evidence that there should be a Saudi flag in there. So yeah. it might not be a false flag, but there's flags missing <laughs> from 9-11. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's more complex than the time when the term was first used, right. which was, uh, it was a naval reference where a ship would go in and do a bomb a harbor or another ship flying and a flying flag. a different flag right. than it's actually representing on its boat. Right. We're now in the 21st century and it's complex. What is Al-Qaeda? It's a database. A database of what? Well, it's a global network of, you know, it gets murky. But there is a pure form reference to the kind that Ned Price detailed in his declassification briefing. And it's been in Americans' faces. They know it. They know it so well. There's a cultural reference to it. Wag the Dog, a 1998 Hollywood movie, has... Advisors of the president go because he's in difficulty because of an affair he had, right? Mm-hmm. Remind you of anything? Mm-hmm. So we need a foreign distraction to get this off the news cycle and get mm-hmm. it replaced with something else. And so they create CGI, hire actors, <clears throat> set it in allegedly Albania or somewhere in ex-Yugoslavia. And the situation is there's a stage choreographed, filmed, not real, fake blood atrocity that takes place. And it's called Wag the Dog because you're basically yeah. uh, Manipulating projecting public opinion. like on Plato's cave, you know, mm-hmm. stuff over here to distract you from mm-hmm. this thing over here. Yeah, it's, cr- it's weird times we live in, definitely. I mean, having lived through the whole period of 9-11, the internet basically, and 9-11 and, you know, the, all of the information in, on the internet and how people start to get their information from the internet and... and, and People able to express their, their their opinions and you know create websites and all that kind of stuff. Uh, having lived through all that and at least from you know a lot of the area that that w- we were focused on because the rest of the area is what it's social media and showing pictures of your lunch and watching the mainstream news. The the only real value for me anyway of the internet is is alternative voices, the ability that it gives to other people who would never get a who never before got a any, any airtime to have some airtime. So obviously we focus on that because, well, I can look at CNN whenever I want. It's, I can turn on the TV and watch CNN, but the internet is somewhere where you can find 
other ideas, other voices, you know. And those other voices that we've been looking at, a lot of them have been, you know, questioning the official narrative about things, you know. And a big part of that was obviously 9-11 and, and everything else that, you know, associated with the war and terror and the role of the US in the world and then now Russia and all that kind of stuff. So it's really weird to see, to have gone through that, that whole period and it, it haven't been dominated to one extent or another by things that the official legacy media calls conspiracy theories. Right. And now, after 20 years plus, to see someone, in the, the spokesman, Pentagon spokesman, validate one of the core <laughs> kind yeah. of tenets of, of the fringe theories yeah. In, yeah. Uh, on the internet, you know, it's bizarre. It's kind of a bizarre world, you know. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I, 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 we, we don't know what's going to happen basically in terms of Russia, Ukraine. I'm pretty sure they're just going to keep it going. We, there, something could, could come out of left field, but I don't think there's going to be any invasion. I mean, it's bizarre. They keep saying, yeah, we don't think there's going to be an invasion. You know, the, the media keeps putting that out there alongside articles that say Russia is poised to invade Ukraine. They have another article below it saying it doesn't look like Russia's going to invade Ukraine. Yeah. Because, you know, it's just not happening. It looks like they're, they're, at, they're, they're doing it for another reason. I, I saw one today. 70% chance. It went from 110% certain right. last week. They're saying We're down to 70% now. I think, I think one of the factors is something we saw last week. The pushback from Ukraine. Their government yeah. pleaded several times in several different ways for <clears throat> Western media to tone down the rhetoric. You know? yeah. I, I think the, the key part would be Ukraine being on board. Because... Yeah. And the massive price they would pay would be a civil war. Never mind whether or not Russia intervenes; they'd be looking at a civil war yeah. situation there. Yeah, uh, there's so many things, so many reasons why it shouldn't. It's it likely won't happen on, on all sides. That there's no investment. There's too much at stake. Too much to lose for everybody. Russia certainly doesn't want to engage in militarily in Ukraine or with Europe or with America or anything like that. But it's putting on a show of force in order to get some respect, basically, to get some attention to, to make them come to the table and take their concerns seriously, which are very legitimate concerns, as I've just described. They're, they're concerns that go back 20 years that they've repeatedly made and that are backed up by treaties and agreements uh, that the US has given, if only verbally, uh, and now they're breaking them. And Russia's like, listen, don't do this. Stop it. This is bad. This is, you've nothing to gain from this, apart from some weird idea that you want to just contain us and stop us from taking our rightful place in the international order. Uh, but that's, That might be everything to some Washingtonians. It might be, but it's still not legitimate. They can't voice it yeah, because it's illegitimate. It's, it's not reasonable. It's not acceptable. No one uh, anywhere in the world would accept that as a reasonable uh, justification or a good reason for what they're doing. So they try and distort it, obviously, and claim that Russia is the aggressor and all that kind of stuff. But I think Russia is just all of this uh, military buildup and stuff is just a way to show their fangs in a certain sense because that's all they can do at this point. They've nothing. They've tried everything else and they've, they, they realize it hasn't worked. They're not listening to us unless we, you know, it's almost like a bully. The only thing a bully recognizes, and that's probably the main uh, philosophy behind what they're doing right now, is that the only thing uh, you can do with a bully is to stand up to him, basically. Um, and the military uh, build-up uh, that's been going on for the past several weeks uh, is basically that, standing up to the bully and, and hoping that that's enough to make them see a bit of sense. You know, not that they're going to see sense, but you force them to stop doing what they're doing. At least stop the, stop the worst of it. Um, and I think there might be enough, it might be enough to actually, to achieve that end, but 
it, the whole thing just strikes me as a kind of like a distraction in a certain sense, a prelude to something else. As we've talked in previous shows about economic concerns and all that kind of stuff, but I mean, there's nothing serious in that front right now. But it's building. If you watch the news and, and different reports week on week, that's not going away. You know, uh, inflation, threats of inflation, uh, food prices, uh, supply chain issues still murmuring away in the background. Oil continuing, continuing its inexorable rise. You know, energy insecurity, and Russia's part of that, obviously, particularly for Europe, but even globally. Uh, Russia is a major supplier of um, uh, of, of, of energy uh, to the world. Um, if there was some kind of a major problem or something where they Russia would have to respond to sanctions or Russia's energy production or supply was sanctioned um, or Russia took some action itself in that respect, it could really destabilize the whole uh, global, at least energy market, which then obviously has knock-on effects to everything else. So that's like lurking in the background, almost like <clears throat> as the real deal, as opposed to this and war, war fever or war fear type of stuff going on, you know. And the probability, I think we, you would agree, that we should give to that is a hundred percent. It may not be imminent, but yeah. the, there's <clears throat> everything is pointing towards. And I wouldn't surprise an economic me if, reset, a great reset, Neil. Everything's point. Well, certainly Klaus Schwab. Klaus Engel Schwab is pointing to uh, a great reset. It has been. He wrote a book on it. I, I think they're mad enough that they would see a severe global economic shock, maybe from the interruption in oil and gas supplies you mentioned, as a good thing, mm-hmm. as an opportunity to... You know, reset. And as they, they're mad enough those that believe, to quote-unquote green the economy, to... Well, certainly Russia's, or America's, you know, uh, poking and chastising and provoking of of Russia um, suggests uh, desperation, because it's not achieving it. It it seems that it's been checkmated by Russia, and particularly with Russia and China, and and in response to this, Russia and China are cementing new deals, new energy deals, you know, they're tying themselves together closer and closer, but... um, which is weird yeah, they, because that's the one thing that um, the Americans fear. But in taking this action, they're actually they're creating, creating the situation that they supposedly fear. And if, like we're saying, the Americans, the, 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 the deep staters, if they get to the point where they feel they've got nothing left to lose, they certainly would precipitate or try to precipitate some kind of a, a crisis, an economic crisis, because that would be their, that's their Samson option in order to remain relevant or to remain uh, to maintain their hegemony, to maintain what they think. I mean, but certainly it's, you're in the realm of crazy people really here because it's not just a last ditch effort like the creating a, some kind of a precipitating an economic crisis would defeat Russia and China or put them back in their place. It would destroy the whole thing. But they certainly think that they'll, in the US and in the West, they think they'll survive it and maybe they'll come out on top. They have some vague plan that that would work. Um, but a more objective analysis of it is that nobody wins in that situation. You know what I mean? It, it precipitates all sorts of bad things and you can't predict that you're going to be the one who's going to come out uh, unscathed or relatively unscathed scathed from that, you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you're dealing, you have to, at a certain point you have to accept that you likely are, as Russia already has done, we think, uh, Russia, uh, you have to accept that in the, in the West, in the halls of power in the West, you're dealing with people who have lost their grip on reality. Scary thought, but 
Or if you want to give some credence to their old view of reality being reasonably objective in its time, then their grip on reality, they won't let go of as reality itself changes. Right. Do you know what I mean? Uh, George Kennan's time produced a lot of the people who are probably pulling the strings from the shadows in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. today, and they just will not let go of democracy is the best. It's the only way. American <clears throat> business is the only way. Mm. We will not have Russia and China. But everything they do produces Russia and China actually right. yeah, getting yeah. closer. Well, that's an example of kind of a, a madness, you know, because yeah. there's that idea of, if the idea of um, continuing to do the same thing and thinking you'll get yeah, different, different results, results is a sign of madness yeah. or, or insanity. Uh, but they're even worse than that. They're continuing to do the same thing and they're not, um, they're getting worse results. You know what I mean? They're not getting the same results, they're getting worse results, you know? Um, they're, they're shooting themselves in the foot, they're achieving the opposite of what they ostensibly claim to want to achieve. Yeah. And yet they continue, you know? Uh, it's like, yeah. hit it with a shovel, it didn't work. Hit it again with a shovel, you know? It didn't work, hit it again. Uh, it has its own shovel now. Well, <laughs> just swing your shovel at it and hope you yeah, knock yeah. its shovel out. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, That's a chunk of iron, sir. I don't think hitting it with a shovel is going to work. Hit it with a shovel. The, about Russia, China. Oh, we broke our shovel. The the Winter Olympics just kicked off. Before that, guest number one at the Olympics for Xi Jinping, who apparently hasn't left China in two years. Ever since Wuhan, that guy has said, you know what, I'm staying right here. He hasn't left the country in two years. Oh, hunger down, yeah. He's like, we'll just roll from here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Something like that. Anyway, Putin goes to him, uh, which he has done every year. Um, they issue a united statement. I've never seen a Chinese statement so, not on this topic, so forthright. You know, They're usually quite, you know, Peace, peace, win-win cooperation. China said explicitly it supports Russia's demands Demands that the U.S. cease NATO expansion. I mean, that's not their sphere. It's not supposed to be. China would never touch it. Mm -hmm. But now they're like, okay, global peace. We have global outlook. Uh, and they'd call on the U.S. to provide long-term security guarantees in Europe. Yeah. Russia, I can imagine in Washington it's going to be like, you don't have a you don't have a say about Europe. Yeah, but NATO. Yeah. Never mind the South China Sea. Stay home, yeah. China man. But no, it's a new world now. Well, China it, will they? say what it thinks about anywhere in the world. And the response. They one last thing. They explicitly said in their joint statement: China and Russia will cooperate in thwarting color revolutions and external interference in yeah. other countries' affairs. Right, and Russia also in response, kind of tit for tat, or you scratch my back. Uh, said that it, it supported uh, uh, Russia's stance on, or sorry, China's stance on, on Taiwan, that Taiwan should not make any moves towards independence. So it was a, very much a, a mutual uh, support. Yeah, I think there's right links. There, I know? think if, 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 if the US made a move in one, it would have to do it in both. Yeah. They, they're basically at the point now where, or rather, Imagine if it didn't, and it say it's totally focused on Ukraine right now, and it's tried to stage something, and there was a conflict with them. Uh, I think the Chinese would give them something to think about simultaneously by doing something vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. The they, they're probably aware of this, though. They probably have this 
The US have put themselves in a very bad position, like, yeah. you know, and on many different fronts. Um, and if they continue, they're gonna they're gonna reap the they're gonna reap the whirlwind, you know. And I think they will they will continue, unfortunately. But so um, you've nothing to say about COVID, then? Is COVID all go- all gone? We managed to get through a whole show without mentioning that C word. Ah, the C word. Um, as long as you don't mention the N word. He's Joe Rogan and the N word. Yeah. Yeah. I, not, like he said, he, he said in that, uh, he did a bit of a kind of, uh, I hate that term that he used in his second most recent thing. Uh, a teaching moment. No, teachable moment. A teachable moment. I first heard that. It was the only time I heard it directly from someone. And it was some, I don't know what it was about. It was it was actually about racism or something. I had some guy on Facebook some New York liberal dude, a teacher who was super, you know, immersed in the in the in the oh, left ideology, and he just anti-Trump, yeah, yeah, and the whole racism thing, and he was accusing me of being racist because I was saying wasn't saying evil things about bad things about Trump, and uh, and he just he was there was no talking to him like there was he was unstoppable, you know, in his in his belief in his own rightness and ideology, and he kept on using that term, a teachable moment. You know, he had this arrogant thing where he was like. This is a very good teachable moment for me to instruct you on the error of your ways. You know what I mean? So, like, no, no question, no doubt as to whether or not his perspective was was right. So, when I heard it, Rogan using that term "teachable moment," like, and it's like, oh god, dude, that is a phrase from that <clears throat> radical lefty woke ideology. Right. It's it, arrogant. It doesn't it doesn't recognize anything other than their perspective. And it's because it impl- implicit in it is I'm here to teach you. Yeah. It's kind of like similar to the uh, the idea that the whole where, where white people would have to have um, a black person or a person of color to go around with them, to observe them, to let them know when they were displaying <laughs> unconscious racism. That's not really a thing. Yeah, because you can't see it yourself, right? Right. Uh, you can you can think well, yeah. I, maybe you can look up different things and say, yeah, maybe if you want to, you know, do, do a do a mea culpa or whatever and prostrate yourself, you would, uh, you'd be able to identify some things maybe if you were to, if you were to go there, but that's not enough. There's loads of things that you're not even aware of. Unconscious racism all right, the time. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's in everything you do as a white person. You yeah. know what I mean? The way you drink your, your tea, you know what I mean? And a black person or a person of color there would be able to teach you in that moment, uh, the error of your ways, you know? Well, so, ironically it's, or not, it's, um, it's actually the ideological nonsense that has unconsciously seeped into, like Joe Rogan is spouting it there, you know. Yeah. The, the culture war is lost, so to speak, as plenty of commentators have pointed out, like genuine conservative ones. Conservatives, like, there's a, even a meme about it, you know. Conservatives are like, uh, they're, what, how does it go? They're 10 years too late or something? Or they're... They're arguing to save, how does it go? In 10 years' time, what they're hoping to you know, keep at bay now, they'll have already moved on. The, mm-hmm. the agenda will have progressed and they'll look, you know, 10 years hence, the thing that they're pleading for will already be. Yeah, um, a reality. Yeah. So it, it's, it's uh, Rogan, but, but you see, Rogan comes from a liberal he won. He voted exactly, Bernie yeah. twice. Yeah, yes, for sure. Yep. He is a liberal. This yep. is how nuts it's all gotten. Yep. That this now, this man is now the evil. 
yeah. Trump. And he, open- he has replaced Trump. Everything he utters, or even what he doesn't utter, what he said in the past, is is a headline mm-hmm. on CNN today. Because mm-hmm. without Trump, they have to have someone to. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's actually one of them, so to speak. You know, that's yeah. how how much the culture war has just eaten its own mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the United States. Yeah, it's, it's going further and further to the extreme. You have to be an extremist, basically, to be accepted at all. If you're outside yeah. of that, that, that far end of the spectrum, then you're, you're up for... Uh, yeah, and he... Um, yeah, there was the teachable moment, and... We, we should explain, if anyone didn't see it, he basically... There's a video Self-recorded, that a five-minute apology. Well, what was interesting was that... Um, he, you know, it came from, we're talking, we mentioned the C word, the code word. Um, he had basically a couple of doctors, uh, virologist Robert Malone and a doctor, Dr. McCullough, who basically, those two in particular, on his show over the past couple of months, who uh, just questioned, the, had a different perspective on the whole COVID narrative, right? And, and across the board in terms of all the aspects of it, including vaccines. And... Um, and then a campaign was to a campaign was launched by someone somewhere who knows where it came from um, to get him to well those those two shows were taken off Spotify and weren't allowed on YouTube and then uh, they went back they, they you know so it was a campaign to basically to to cancel him yeah but a, letter, cancel, a letter by two hundred and fifty doctors against that who weren't yeah. actually doctors anyway yeah. but uh, who cares um, but then so there was an attack on Joe Rogan basically for speaking truth to power, basically, or, or, or countering the official narrative yeah. or on COVID in particular. And because he did that, very quickly, he found himself having to defend accusations of racism. Yeah. Totally disconnected from what he was initially attacked for, which was having a different perspective or allowing other people, facilitating other people to express a different opinion on COVID and vaccines. Yeah, two years into it. Right. Because at the beginning, he was interviewing very different people. Right. But so he does that. He simply facilitates other people to express counter narratives or different opinions to the official narrative on vaccines and and COVID policies. And within a couple of weeks, he's accused, he's having to defend himself and apologize for racism. Yeah. How do you get there? Yeah. How does that happen? Surely he should, he should only address the issue that he was, he was accused of, yeah. which was giving, spe- spreading disinformation on, on Spotify or on, on, on the platform. But suddenly he has to defend against racism. Yeah. Uh, this is what the real meaning of the culture war is. It, it's not really two sides. It's one. It's top down. It's culture war in the sense that the cultural war of the, the Maoists in, for a brief period during early communist China was. Mm. It's, a, it's a government top down war against expressions of culture which threaten or have the potential to threaten our power that's what it is i mean it's yeah it's not a culture it's not left versus right it's jen saki at the white house podium saying yeah I, i heard about spotify removing all those yeah well we think they could do more yeah and when they after a few a couple of days after she said that doing more at least in terms of this, you know, putting Rogan in his place was to have him force him to defend himself again, defend himself again against accusations of being racist. A yeah. video put on you, there's a video right. basically put out from years ago 
uh, of, of a collection of any time you use the N-word, that secret word that only black people... And to some extent, it's very, very interesting. I think people who are not uh, African-Americans but who are still people of colour, they can say uh, the N-word ending in A. They can say all... No, they can say it, but they can't. No, but they, no, they can't. <laughs> no? No, they can only say it with ending with A, right. not ending with R. Okay. But African-Americans can say the full word. Uh, it's interesting, you know. It's, isn't it interesting that some people... I think Joe Rogan actually said it's interesting that some people can say, a, a big section of the population can say a word, yeah. and, and the other, the others can't. This is where this all began. Because and they can say and they can say it in loads of different ways. They can they can use it. It's it's just like it's a multi multi purpose word. It's like you can you can say it uh, as a as a term of endearment. You can say it as a as as a put down. You can say it as a whatever. That's the context Joe Rogan was using it on his podcast, making that point. Yeah. Ironically, and he didn't connect the two. He was speaking to the origins of prescribed speech, mm. where now I've got you. You know. Mm. Which ironically is the acronym prescribed. is Niggy Sob, which stands for it's an acronym which stands for now I've got you, you son of a bitch. There's no connection other yeah. than the parents' similar sounding thing there, but that's he was speaking to the origin of prescribed speech. That it it was never it's not officially prescribed, it's not illegal to say it. But functionally on social media you're screwed if you say it. Or even in real life, yeah, yeah. That's weird. And and no matter what context you use it in, that's the weird thing. Because yeah. obviously there's contexts where it's, it can be, it's obviously it can be used as a slur or with negative connotations, and it will be very clear in the context that you use that that's what you're using it in. Yeah. But you can't even say it. You can't even discuss it. Uh, you know, you can't utter the word to discuss it from a sociological point of view. You couldn't even talk about it from an or from an etymology point of view. You can't. Yeah. You can't. You can't use it to discuss the the root of the word or the origin. <laughs> it's soon going to be verboten. Just to use the term blacks, yeah. that's already on the way out. It's either African-Americans or people of color, or in the UK, it's BAME. Black, People African. of black and African, black African and Middle Eastern, black, I think. Just black and Middle Eastern, I think. Black and Middle Eastern, yeah. BAME, but why black, you, no, why, that's why, a bit racist. BAME, yeah. We better get off this topic before I say what you're not allowed to say. I have, kind of, I have kind of Tourette's syndrome where yeah, okay. I tend to trip into saying it. Yeah, 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 and then that will be the end of the show on YouTube for sure. Um, uh, on COVID, for what it's worth, uh, it is worth something. I mean, it's worth something symbolically. You know, Reiner Fulmick, the German guy who started the Corona Investigative Committee, he did what Joe Rogan ought to have done, which is interview several hundred, five hundred plus people, experts, some of them most of them actually scientists or doctors, experts in some way involved with virology or medical response to that, but also many political experts as well, legal experts and so on. 500 plus people over the last two years. <clears throat> some of these things are like four hours long. There's multiple people. Some of them are like they're working in Geneva, the World Health Organization. They're part of all kinds of... Anyway, he's condensing all of that into a new website which I'll put the link to in the show description, called covidcrime.org. What it is is, and 
they issued opening statements to it yesterday, complete with a whole setup. There's Reiner and then his assistant. I've forgotten her name. She's also a lawyer. It's a grand jury proceeding based on the U.S. model of opening a grand jury by the People's Court of Public Opinion hmm. um, to find those responsible and find a name and punish those responsible for the pandemic. Hmm. That'd be a hard job. I know. But it's an impressive website. They basically bring all the... They've got a whole team of people compiling stuff based on those interviews. Did you just it to Maybe we should put it up here, yeah. Um, he's determined. I mean, we know it won't go anywhere, but... Um, COVID crime, grand jury, court of public opinion, February 5th, oh, it's just today. Okay. The largest organized crime against humanity ever perpetrated. Well, if that's true, then definitely head should roll. Um, and COVID, and, uh, and there's been just a bit, bit of kind of COVID news again mainstream kind of sources uh, just go to the Telegraph Scotty um, well either one of them will do do one one and then the other uh, shambolic COVID PCR testing rules meant one in three who isolated were never contagious many forced to quarantine did not need to because threshold for positive tests was set very low says study um, University of Oxford academics found this Oh, did they now? Finally, after two, after about two years. Um, pretty sure we were saying this... In April 2020? Probably end of March even, you know, within a couple of weeks. We're like, uh, yeah, and then we said it, and many other people said it repeatedly over and over and over again to absolute stonewalling and silence. And now that it's all done and everybody they've got everybody vaccinated, only now can you uh, recognize, can the media recognize what we were, what so many people were saying for so long which was that they were basically falsifying positive test results by setting the cycle count on the PCR tests way right. too high. Something that Fauci himself is on record as having said on a video, as having said before this all started, when he was talking about PCR tests, he said that, you know, if you go above 35 or 36 cycle counts, you'll pretty much find whatever, you'll find anything, whatever you want, whatever you whatever you want to find, you will find. Uh, and But what you'll find is... Um, dead remnants of the thing that you're looking for, like dead, like, you know, little pieces of that are of no significance. Yeah. I.e., people, so many people who have been getting positive PCR test results over the past two years have had nothing, no, no real significant, no real evidence or no real, yeah, no, no real evidence of, of the, live the, of, of, of the virus in them, in them yeah. at all. But they were positive and they had to isolate and take 10 days off work and blah, blah, blah. Um, and the other one is just a little thing on vaccine passports. Interesting admission. A paper from the Environmental Modeling Group. Uh, it's the other Telegraph article. The paper from the Environmental Modeling Group says passes have limited impact on viral spread. <laughs> Li and, and limited impact is the same thing as they also had a, there was a, I think we had it last week, about uh, lockdowns having limited impact on 
spread as well. Yeah, that was Johns Hopkins. Hopkins John Hopkins, itself, the source of the whole damn thing. John Hopkins limited impact from lockdowns. So lockdowns again. So PCR is bullshit, more or less, uh, at least in the way that they were presented. Uh, lockdowns, apparently, according to John Hopkins, very limited impact. Didn't really help at all, but people were, you know, pretty seriously uh, impacted and, you know, a lot of people traumatized by by the kind of lockdowns that were imposed on them, especially elderly people who were locked in their houses in fear of their lives. So that had very little impact either. And in this one, um, vaccine passports uh, can be a lever, admitting that they can be a lever. And this is from the UK Environmental AU. UK, go- UK government environmental modelling group says they have limited impact. So when you hear the word limited impact, it generally means it was useless. You know, that's just a kind of political speak or journalistic speak to say that really, if you look at it, there was no point in doing it. So no point in doing lockdowns. PCR tests were in many cases bogus. And vaccine passports also have limited impact. But vaccine passports in the sense that they it's not so much the vaccine passport, but it's the denial of people who are not who don't have a vaccine passport, i.e., who aren't vaccinated, denying them access to social life. Had an has, an, has an impact on what? On getting people vaccinated. So, all the people who already have the vaccine, hmm. and you know, uh, and and and. Uh, it's not really having the vaccine doesn't help to stop the spread. And there's almost like a there's an admission within this, and it's, it's, it's something else that's in the news as well is that in terms of Omicron, the vaccines don't really work uh, to stop the spread of Omicron. As we've seen, many people um, over the past few months since Omicron has been around who are fully vaccinated coming down with Omicron. Now, is that from a dodgy PCR test? I don't know. Because it's very complicated here when you throw all this together, you know what I mean? But at least officially, there's loads of people catching, quote-unquote, COVID, i.e. Omicron, um, while fully vaccinated. So, yeah, vaccine passports, vaccines don't... What are you trying to stop at this point is the question. You know what I mean? What's the danger? The whole thing is just so... uh, It's hard to get your head around. It's just You have to just dig right through it and figure out that this is just a means to some other end that it's not really about health. If it ever was, it's not about health at this point. Yeah. Um, Is, did Austria actually implement that mandatory vaccine? Apparently they did. Uh, Fine. I think it's starting on the, the... I think it started February 1st. That was when it was going to but start. But it wouldn't... Yeah, but it wouldn't... You wouldn't. They wouldn't start implementing the actual fines until the middle of February or something. They've given some people until a grace Until mid-March. Period. Checks will begin in mid-March. Okay. But thereafter, anyone over 18 can be fined €3,600 up to four times a year. So about €14,000 mm. per year. Per year. So they've got it worked out for a year on year. I mean, that's that's... That's what I don't understand. I'm in a kind of state of dissonance at the moment where I'm seeing headlines like Denmark lifts all restrictions. Oh, okay, yay, back to normal. Well, no, the caveat is if you're not vaccinated, you're not welcome. Right. But all restrictions are lifted except on all of you who are unvaccinated. Right. But that's excluding unvaccinated people from the, from the population. When you talk about the country and the people, it doesn't include the, vac- the unvaccinated. Everything's fine in our country. Everything's free. Everything's open. If you're vaccinated, that's but that's excluding away. vaccinated people. That's the from the, the statement goal, about that how the end goal of all this then is what the end goal is. Yeah, maybe this is what 
we're supposed to get to. Look at the, just throw up the John talking about John Johns Hopkins, um, JPEG. Um, this is their data, and um, ninety-five percent of adults over fifty in Israel are vaccinated, and about eighty-five percent have received a booster. And there's the result on February third. The little dot on the right hand side. Mm-hmm. So, so what do you think? The highest number of daily deaths from COVID. Yeah, with almost everybody. Pretty much everybody vaccinated over fifty, and eighty-five percent with a third, third dose. Um, doesn't stop them getting Omicron apparently. Although the saving grace is that Omicron is very similar to the cold for the vast majority of people. Um, but still, it's talked about. It's you know talked about in terms of it's still being a pandemic. It's talked about in terms of people needing boosters, still needing boosters, still get vaccinated. Uh, again. I mean, the same people who are doing this, I think, are the same crazies that are doing the geopolitics. You, know, you think it, so? Well, it's certainly the same mindset. Not yeah. the same people, but they have the same mindset. They they all have lost their marbles uh, in the same way, you know, because they're, they're, they're detached. The extent of their detachment from reality and being able to just look at what's actually happening and take a rational response based on what's actually happening is gone. They are on some other track, on some other agenda. Yeah. Something else is D- going on. The UN is putting out kind of info ads where I've got one here. The COVID pandemic is in its sixth year. Right. Do you want to see some of this thing? It's yeah. nuts. This is kind of like the World Economic Forum's ads, you know, by 2030, <clears throat> you will own nothing. You will be happy. You yeah. Know? By 2020, we'll all be underwater. Um. Of this is from global warming. UNICEF, exactly. So that's the children's agency of the United Nations. <laughs> the COVID pandemic is in its sixth year and everybody's happy. In 2020, scientists developed life-saving COVID-19 vaccines in record-breaking time. It was miraculous. Saved the lives of my parents and grandparents. In just a few months, nearly everybody in my country got the vaccine. I lost my mother right at the start of the pandemic. So many doctors and nurses got sick. School closed down. But then came the vaccine. You said life would return to normal. You restored our hope. And you promised you wouldn't stop there. You said you'd help other countries. You promised to share vaccines with the whole world. To make sure it ended everywhere, for everyone. But you took too long. You brought up supplies and held them back. Just Just in case. case. You let people in other countries suffer. Doctors and nurses kept getting sick. Teachers died. You let the virus carry on, going round and round and round. You changed into even more dangerous variants. And it all came back again and again and again. Schools closed again. Life kept getting turned upside down for all of us. Things could have worked out so So differently. You knew that no one is safe until everyone's safe. 
everybody there is taking uh, hydroxychloroquine. That is creepy. That's like Greta on steroids. I'll give you nightmares. No one is safe until everybody is safe. Yeah, no one died from coronavirus in Africa. Well, better be careful with that statement. Extremely few numbers, like unbelievably small numbers compared to the West. Mm -hmm. Yep, because of... But the main point here is, I'm not even going to start from the numbers because that gets us in trouble every time. It's, It's the fact that the... This is coming from the top down. For them, COVID didn't end. It's no. forever. It's not over. The band's going to make it. It's forever and ever and ever and ever. They're yeah. So it suggests there's an agenda. And of course, you know, they'll just segue into that agenda and with another reason, another crisis, another this. And before pe- and people won't, won't have time to stop and think, you know, I mean, certainly if you're not paying attention on the ball, then you can, you're going to miss it. You're going to just go along and into a new normal and, you know. It's important to chart these things and to look at them and to, you know, to study them and analyze the whole situation. And you have to have a certain perspective in order to do that. You know, you can't just be stuck with your head in the sand and depending entirely on the media and government for your every word. I mean, people have plenty of reason today to distrust government and the media, right? At, mm-hmm. at least to, to question it and to engage in their own analysis of the situation. But maybe a lot of people can't do that even to a minimal degree. So they're, they're, they're stuck. They're, they're in a tough spot, you know? Um, yeah. Um, it's, uh, yeah, the, the, just a word on the vaccines. I mean, there's stuff coming out. We'll, maybe we'll do more about it on another show next week or something. But, um, yeah, we've said this before anyway, that, um, there has been stuff come out over the past week showing or past few weeks, a study showing that, uh, natural immune, natural protection, i.e naturally acquired immunity to uh, COVID, to the coronavirus, this SARS-CoV-2, is uh, as good, possibly better, longer lasting than immunity derived from the mRNA vaccines in particular. And also there's a possibility, I'm not going to say this is a, a case, it still has to be looked into. And obviously the whole vaccine thing is new and mRNA vaccines are new, but that mRNA vaccines might actually... Uh, in terms of the kind of immunity that they provoke in your body, may it, I've said this before that it's too specific, it's too uh, uh, focused too tightly on one particular part of one particular variant of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and maybe training your your immune system uh, in a way that's less than optimal, uh, where it would not have an optimal response, natural response, uh, based because of the kind of memory cells and and, and uh, that, that that it provokes uh, towards a particular part of this virus, that it that may there's a, there's an idea called original antigenic sin. Do I have it somewhere here? Um, yeah, original antigenic sin is uh, refers to the propensity of the body's immune system to pref- to preferentially util- utilize immunological memory based on previous infection when a second slightly different version of that foreign pathogen or virus is encountered. So basically. You train your system to and, and to, to develop an immune response through vaccines, in this case, uh, to develop uh, memory cells for that specific type of virus, a part of that specific type of virus, uh, which means that then um, uh, use that same memory in a wrong way, basically, for future infections, you know, to 
to basically it mounts a less than optimal immune response. It focuses too too narrowly too narrowly and too tightly on one particular virus, one particular part of a virus, meaning that whenever a a, a new variant of that comes along or a recom rec, uh, recombined, say with another virus. Uh, comes along that has a part of that it'll focus your immune system in a too narrow way again on that leaving you with a less than optimal immune response compared to a natural uh, immune response which tends to be broader and more you know uh, more more yeah a more general immune response you know a newer immune response you know more, it's like traumatizing more, more, more versatile yeah it's kind of like it's kind of like training you to respond uh, unthinkingly or reactively to something because it was kind of like a because traumatic it's, it's, experience. It's, it's, and it's, a very, it's a very precise trigger yeah. of that experience. Yeah. So you'll respond, Whereas, you'll respond ineffectively to a, to a broader array of triggers that are similar yeah. Right, right. Yeah. There's, there's stuff, I mean, that's just a very general explanation of it, but there's, um, that's a quest, a big question mark right now, you know. Um, and again, it's not known because there's a very new situation and uh, they don't know a lot about exactly what effect uh, these mRNA vaccines and in particular repeated boosts of them are having on people's immune system. It said, we said it on a previous show where I think it was the um, European a Med- European Medicines, Agency. Medicines Agency said that that repeated boosters with mRNA vaccines is, could have actually detrimental effects on, on your immune system. So it's not a good idea to keep boosting people. Now that says, that's a negative comment on mRNA vaccines. Okay, in the context of repeated boosters, but the question then is, well, what if you had three, effectively, three doses of that mRNA vaccine? Is it okay? It's just the fourth one or the fifth one would be bad? Or has do they in some way compromise your immune system already when you've had the mRNA vaccines? Who knows? We'll find out. We're just leaving it open. We're not making any statements. It's not medical misinformation. We're just, <laughs> we're just, we're just, we're just opening it up. You know, science is all about questioning, right? I tell you what, this whole vaccine thing has trained your ability to say things yeah. as patiently and diplomatically and as scientifically as you possibly can. That's without, I'm afraid of YouTube, you know. I have nightmares about YouTube. Um, no, I don't really. But anyway, that was all very... I think we need to end on space news. a positive note. Oh, okay. Do you have space news? Yeah, it's awesome. What? Everyone missed it because of the way we think of it. Like, uh, reporters on asteroids just do not understand what's going on. Every time a new thing is observed in space, they're like, oh, isn't that awesome? It must be because we're watching more of it. No. The cutbacks in space observation, uh, like their budgets have plummeted, whether mm-hmm. they're private agencies or official ones like NASA. So when new objects are observed, like hmm. it says a lot. There's probably a lot more of them. So Earth picked up its second Trojan asteroid in one decade. It was 11 years to be precise. It picked up one in 2011 and now... What's a Trojan year. asteroid? A Trojan asteroid is an asteroid that is ordinarily in our environment and it flies past it. But it's close enough that Earth's gravity picks it up and pulls it into orbit. Ah. It's now orbiting us. Oh, cool. We did just used to have the moon. Now we have two asteroids. Oh, cool. For sure that we know of that are going around in orbit. Are they in, are they in a stable orbit or could they... Stable orbit. They okay. have to be stable in order to be classified Trojan. Okay. So we got two new moons in the last 11 years and that should be, you know, headline news. Can, can Instead, we, it's sort of like, oh, yeah. Can that's we, awesome. That must be because of our awesome technologies that can see all these things. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. It's like humans are so like, let's just pat each other on the back. You know, yeah. aren't we awesome? Yeah. Not really. This is like, this is not a good sign. Can we mind them? <laughs> That's the second thing they ask. Yeah. No, the second thing they ask is, awesome. We can study this thing because it'll tell us about the origins of the solar system. Right. It's included in every story about asteroids. I don't know why, but it's the first thing to think of. This will increase our knowledge of ourselves and where we came from. Yeah. Okay. The third question is, can we make money out of it? Yeah. Maybe they need an up-close encounter with one just to really study it closely, you know? Yeah, on fire through the the atmosphere. One lands in your city. Then you can give it a good study. Um. Okay, yeah. So that's, well, that's my positive news. Well, I have, better, I have more today. positive news. Yeah. I have even better positive news than that. Um, and it's that Nancy Pelosi, this is slightly old news, it's maybe 10 days or so oh, old. She's not but still she's, alive. Well, she's running again, you know. Obviously, the midterms are coming, and she's only 700 years old, so there's plenty of life in the old old bird yet. So um, she's... Vaccines and, definitely work in some cases. Yeah, for sure. Uh, extend your life. They save you from death, basically. Um, Nancy's a living testimony to it. She's probably had 14 of them or something. But, um, yeah, if you just uh, tear up there, Scotty. Um, Nancy is... This is just She's looking well for 700. Exactly. Well, she's been... uh, There's probably a lot of editing there done on that video. But this is just a short short section of it. And it just... But it's the main part. It'll restore your faith. Put it that way. Good. When people ask me what are the three most important issues facing the Congress, I always say the same thing. Our children, our children, our children. Their health, their education, the housing and economic security of their families, a clean, safe environment in which they can thrive, and a world of peace in where they are all welcome and in which they can reach their fulfillment. That is my why, why I am in Congress, for the children. This is my story, and this is my song. As you hear me say, when you're in the arena, you have to be able to take a punch or throw a punch for the children. 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 Oh, kill me now. Kill me now. And people obviously vote for her, so yeah. Well, she's it in works. It for the children, but her children are a bunch of the big uh, companies that are on the stock exchange. They're the children she's talking about, actually, <laughs> and they're the ones that she gets inside information, inside uh, you know, uh, info on, and that her husband then buys or sells stock in, and um, that's it's for the children, Neil. It's for the children. I think I saw a memed version of that where they they start where they're talking and the buildings in the background start going on fire. (laughs) There's a riot, you know. For the children. (laughs) I'm saving the children. Uh, Yeah, that's where peak peak hypocrisy, peak bullshit, peak manipulation. And if you can't see that that now, but this time next year. Maybe. I don't think it can get any worse. (laughs) that's what they all say can't get any worse Uh, people watching this comment you gotta hold Joe to that on this day February 6th 2021 Joe said it can't get any worse yeah the 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 hypocrisy the hypocrisy can't get any worse yeah other things can get worse for sure but the peak bullshit like you can't go any further than they've gone like you know 
And if you don't get it, you don't get it because you haven't done, you haven't looked into it, you haven't thought for yourself, you haven't researched it, so you don't get it and you won't get it. But at this point, for people who actually under, know what's going on and have, a, have, have an idea of what's going on and know a bit of the history and know, where, know the background to what these people are talking about, it's peak hypocrisy. Like, mm. it's, like I keep saying, it's 180. Like, I mean, it has been that way for a while, but it's just the amount of 180s that are coming out in terms of what they say and the truth being exactly the opposite is, uh, is crazy, you know? Because um, there's be only so far you can go before, before you would start waking up the people who are basically asleep who, who don't pay any attention to it. If you go too far and you start saying, start, start saying egregiously false things, you risk... Um, you know, you risk your job, you risk, uh, you know, red-pilling people, as they say, you know. So um, I think that's is It'll continue on in this way and we'll continue to be harassed and annoyed by it and, you know, have steam coming out of our ears and that kind of thing. But um, it can't get any worse. But I may be wrong. I, I'm hoping to be wrong. It'll be amazing. It'll be awesome. <laughs> if, if they go even further than the shit they come out with already. But, yeah. I, I think there's more to come because that thing from the stay uh, we saw from Price and Kirby mm. with the, yeah, we've got declassified information. The mm. Russians are planning to do, you know, crisis actors, fake blood. That, that for me is the opening. That's peak. Because once you open that realm, it's like infinite iteration. We saw that with conspiracy lore over the last two decades. Be, and clearly there were some people who started and then others poured fuel on the fire. It became the dominant alternative account to the official explanation of all these atrocities mm. it's saturated all of it so i think that might be like the you know the, opened, the hole in the dike that's gonna open the gates of hell yeah a full-on alex jones and worse in fairness we shouldn't cite him i'm talking full-on like full mental conspiracy theory stuff from washington on a daily basis that would be that, awesome that could be coming the 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 yeah, the to the point where European governments are like, okay. White House Gov would become like a conspiracy website. Yeah. Yeah. Just go to White House Gov, you'll find all the good conspiracies there. <laughs> all the good conspiracy theories. Uh, yeah. Okay. I've been going for quite a while here, over two and a half hours. Um, but yeah, we hope you enjoyed it, guys. Uh, thanks for watching, listening, commenting. That's a hold my beer moment for Pelosi. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah um, we hope you enjoyed it thanks for watching listening for subscribing if you haven't done so please subscribe we'll be back next week with another show until then have a good week and stay safe and uh, shut up and get the vaccine see you next week everyone bye can't stop the signal now